Hey everybody, this is Cameron in the edit. Just wanted to give you a heads up here at the beginning. This is an episode that's like any other episode, but there are some content things that come up that are pretty uncommon for the show. Uh, the first is that there's a long discussion of MAR Barker and white supremacy and neo-Nazism in the middle of the episode or a little bit after the middle of the episode. It's in chapter four's discussion. And also there's some pretty extensive discussion of sexual assault within tabletop role-playing game play that happens across the entire episode. It never gets very graphic or anything like that, but it is kind of a discussion that shows up repeatedly in the book, and so it, it kind of is peppered in across the episode. So just letting people know about that. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll let you get right to the episode. Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we know about. This is a show where I, Cameron, and my co-host Michael... Hi! read through works of game studies and uh, talk about them and maybe try to lay them out for people who don't have advanced degrees in game studies. Well, I guess neither of us have advanced degrees <laughs> in game studies, but uh, trying to take academic books and make them a little bit more readable and accessible and fun for people to uh, enjoy. We are in the middle. Uh, no, actually, I guess we're beginning the summer of classics. Oh my God, it's the fonts. <laughs> He's jamming. <laughs> it's the famous thing that Fonzie did. Oh my God, it's the shark from Jaws. He's having a great time. <laughs> He's killing Quinn. Here I am typing this all into Dolly Mini. <laughs> oh, uh, the Fonz jumping the shark, but it's the shark from Jaws. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we're in the summer classics. That, it really is just, uh, we're reading some stuff over the summer. Uh, that uh, we've been trying trying to get to big classics in game studies and things that are classics in other fields and not game studies and maybe they should be classics in game studies. Uh, we will talk about that more at the end of the episode. But this episode, we are going back to the classics, the true classics, the real stuff, the big original works. I'm filibustering while I figure out when this book came out. 1983. Uh, Michael. 1983. Great, great, great. I'm glad I found it and uh, required no help. Uh. We're reading Gary Allen Fine. Uh, Gary Allen Fine's shared fantasy role-playing games as social worlds from 1983, and it's generally understood to be the first academic book on role-playing games, as far as I know. Uh, now, it seems like there's some papers and some things like that, but I think this is the first full, whole, big book about game studies, and uh, it's particularly about, or not about game studies, but about tabletop role-playing games. Uh, although it, it's got to also be one of the first kind of full works of game studies in the sense of like thinking of that as a discrete field, although not the first. But uh, normally what we would do is we would dive right into it and start talking about it. But I think this time I want to start with a little bit of a reenactment. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, longtime listeners of Range Touch know that we love a good reenactment. You know, it's a big part of the brand. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and here's one. So uh, this, this is a conversation between two characters, two people, two historical figures, Barry and George, and they are talking about player knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, the role of Barry will be played by, of course, Michael, and the role of George will be played by me. Now, this is not Bob and George of uh, some other fame that Michael probably knows about. This is Barry and George mm -hmm. and not Barry, the HBO television program. Mm -hmm. um, these are uh, these are legally distinct Barrys and Georges. You really missed, so, uh, missed a bullet by not reading one of the ones that's literally Jerry and George. That's right. We really did. 
Uh, okay, well, let, <clears throat> let, you know what? I, I'm going to give it over to you, All Michael, right. to begin this <clears throat> scene as Barry. <clears throat> I'm going to see my father in the Great White Lodge. Uh, you don't know anything about the Great White Lodge. I've heard about it. Well, you might you might have heard about it. I, in I, mythology, I, you know? That Yeah, that's about all you've heard. You don't even know there's a leader there? Yes, I do. You certainly don't know that it's your father. No, but I always wanted to see him. Well, everyone wants to see someone important, I guess. That doesn't mean anything. And seen. And, <laughs> and seen. We are both bowing. I'm bowing to the left, I'm bowing <laughs> to the right, bowing forward. Turning around, bowing backward, uh, and uh, and being a little scamp about it, mm-hmm. uh, flipping up my uh, you know my tails from my coat and whatnot. <laughs> this is uh, a scene like many scenes in uh, shared fantasy because it's a book of sociology that is uh, informed heavily by field notes, you know, participant observer work. Uh, that Gary Allen Fine did with a few different tabletop groups in the Minneapolis question mark yeah. area mm-hmm. in the Minneapolis area, and uh, in that scene, uh, <laughs> uh, one person had character knowledge and player knowledge, and they were different, mm-hmm. and the other person was the DM who did not want them to do that. And uh, we're gonna, I think, probably talk about many of those different scenes, but that's a big chunk of this book, is just hearing people disagree with one another <laughs> about the very thing that they're doing, which, if there's anything we've learned from this little unit uh, about tabletop gaming, you know, starting with John Peterson's The Elusive Shift, and then going into White's Book on the Forge, and now with this book, Shared Fantasy... I would say that the thing that unites tabletop gaming studies is trying to analyze why people are arguing so much. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, I don't know. Uh, this is a big, important book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, had, had you had you heard about it before? Uh, I think I'd heard about it, but I had never I had never had any cause to read it. Right. I was never really looking at tabletop games or anything like that. Um, And certainly the most I've heard about it has been in the past two books that we've read where it comes up rather frequently. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I've I have read pieces of this before, but I've never sat read the whole thing uh, for sure. Um, And, uh, you know, there are people, I think, who really um still hold it up for this book. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like there, there are people who I know who are like talking about this very regularly. And I think it's a pretty interesting academic book in that, as you were saying before, some of it really sticks around and feels very salient. And some of it, you know, feels almost like a historical record. Mm-hmm. Um, and also maybe that's, you know, I mean, it was written in the eighties. Maybe that is like a good function of it at this point. Um, although I will say having read it, that I do think that the way that, both of the previous books um, have kind of treated it as like, hey, look at this like thing that speaks to an era. I think they actually probably could have used some of its key terms or some of its analysis a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, especially the white book, because this seems to be pretty good for giving you, I mean, it, you know, uh, fine digs into Goffman's like frames, mm-hmm. um, theory of frames and things like that. And weirdly enough, I feel like if that had been, if, if the white book had dug as deeply into frames as uh, as Fine does, I think that that Forge book might have been, um, you know, had that the- theoretical component that we were missing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it might have been a little bit more filled out, even if I have some kind of qualms or um, unhappiness with uh, with Goffman in a general sense. But um, I don't know. I, you've done some bibliographical research here, mm-hmm. biographical research. What what have you learned about uh, Gary Allen Fine before we talk about the blow by blow of this book? Yeah. Uh, I was interested in just finding out a little bit more about Fine uh, and seeing sort of what he had done, because this uh, to the preface of this book is him essentially defending the the project itself. Uh, You know, like I have written this book on tabletop uh, fantasy role playing and. Why have I done that? How there are there basically like two critiques that he anticipates. And this makes sense because it's 1983. But uh, one is that, uh, you know, allegations basically from other sociologists that the topic is sort of like frivolous or unnecessary and and not worthy of analysis. And then the other one uh, from more, I think, people aligned with the hobby itself, that the analysis uh, ruins whatever is is happening. Right. You you suck the fun out of it. Uh, He actually, I think, uh, uses a a similar metaphor to Stephen King in our Dan's Macabre episode of just King things of like, uh, you know, analysis is like pinning the butterfly of enjoyment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was interested kind of in that. I was like, oh, that's that's. You know, he, he's making a kind of claim for what sociology does here. He's saying sociology can look at these things, uh, that these things are worthy of analysis, uh, and that analysis isn't going to ruin them. It is, in fact, going to, like, increase our uh, understanding and appreciation of them. Uh, so I wanted to see what he got up to and what he did. Uh, and it turns out Gary Allen Fine has written a whole lot on a whole lot of topics. Uh, he got his PhD from Harvard in sociology in 1976. And it seems like that very same year he joined the sociology department at University of Minnesota, which is important because it seems like he's doing most of his playing with Minnesota-based groups here. And in fact, the UMIT Minnesota connection is going to be important uh, later when we talk about uh, his work with uh, M.A.R. Barker. Um he was there for quite a while, uh, moved to University of Georgia, I think, in 1990, and currently he is at Northwestern University, uh, but he has written on uh, not just tabletop role-playing games, but uh, before this, I think he had written a book on Little League, like uh, Little mm-hmm. League uh, games, uh, which kind of makes sense. You can see kind of the connection there, uh, but he's also written on uh, mushroom hunting and like the culture of mushroom hunting. Uh, he's written on like the culture of, uh, kitchens, like, uh, in, in restaurants. Uh, he's written books about, uh, the, like, uh, the ways that like elder, like senior citizen progressive activists, uh, like network and like, uh, organize. Um, he's also interested in sort of, uh, rumor and fame as topics and kind of like infamy. He's got a book, I think that covers like, uh, uh, Benedict Arnold and a couple of other like controversial figures from, uh, American history. Uh, so he's a very interesting figure. Fine is, because he is, on the one hand, uh, seemingly interested in kind of, like, big questions about, let's say, like, American identity or, like, American mythopoeticism or something, right? 
Um, uh, and then on the other hand, he is interested in very specific and like granular topics, uh, sort of communities of practice or like interest. Uh, and as this book kind of demonstrates, and we'll of course get to it as we talk through it, uh, it's clear that kind of the connective tissue here is that uh, Fine sees uh, the big thing coming out of the small thing. Or actually, he, he actually does see them uh, sometimes in some ways as reinforcing one another. Uh, but he, he is interested in how like the micro movements of culture are like mirrors of the macro movements of a culture uh if if that makes sense and if it doesn't hopefully it will by the end of this episode yeah i mean this is yet another book in which there's a final chapter that should have been at the beginning (laughs) i don't know what is going on (laughs) right like maybe this was like a part of book culture that i'm just not aware of or because none of it is in fields that like I am a part of, you know, disciplines that I'm a part of in the sense of like uh, the amount of like straight sociology I read in grad school was like functionally zero. Right. Right. Um, at least as far as my like training is concerned. And so maybe this is just more common, uh, especially in sociology of the 80s or 90s. I don't know. I really don't know. But there is a um, uh, at the end of the book, there's a thing called the methodological appendix. Um, you had this in your book, right? Yes, I did. OK, just making sure we didn't talk about it beforehand. So. <laughs> And the methodological appendix kind of lays this out, right? Like, as you were saying, the preface kind of defends the whole project and, and does a little bit of what you were saying of being like, hey, here's why this matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually pretty funny. I think Fine's a funny writer. Um, he knows when he's like saying a thing that that is humorous mm-hmm. um, and uh, he doesn't back away from it. So I would say in a general sense, uh, the book is really readable. Um, I sat and read it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I did not have to kind of like suffer through it or like, make you know mark out time and be like okay i'm reading for this full hour uh, which happens occasionally with an academic book i could just kind of sit and read this um and uh that that is an accomplishment in and of itself but uh yeah in the methodological appendix he's like number one uh this is participant observer work but uh often that just means standing around (laughs) Mm -hmm. um i did not stand around i played a bunch of games and so he says that he played uh at this uh, this place called the Golden Brigade Club, which is a, a where a lot of Minneapolis like role playing happened, mm-hmm. which was notably is this the place that's in the basement of the police club? Yeah, it's like it's uh, either in the it's like a, a community room at a police station. Right, right. So like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> think think about who gets to go there. Right, right? no meta reflection on that uh, whatsoever. Right, mm-hmm. but yeah, so it's like a, a club in a police station somewhere. Um, kind of like a VA hall, I guess, similar, similar deal. Um, and, uh, so people play there, uh, but eventually he realizes that he needs something a little bit more longitudinal or he's not really getting the data that he's interested in getting. So he eventually ends up in two private games, one, which is run by a former military member who was in college and runs, um, I forget which game chivalry and whatever, what's that Maybe game chivalry and sorcery, I think. Chivalry and sorcery, yeah. Don't the, all these games having very similar titles uh, really hurts me in the 1970s. But so that's the first private game that he's involved in, and then the second private game that he is involved in is quite literally a game run by M. A. R. Barker, uh, set in the Tecumel setting, which we've talked about uh, two episodes ago in the Peterson episode. 
Um, and it's his like private game of world building in Empire of the Petal Throne, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, the game at the time. And we will talk more about that later as we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it got way weirder than I thought it would be. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, even more than you could ever imagine. Uh, but uh, but the reason I say all of that, right, is that the, this methodology chapter really does lay all that out. And it lays out the thing that you were talking about just now, I think, even more clearly, which is like, this is the the microculture here uh, is like a mini model of the macroculture, and the thing that's important to find, or one of the things that's really important to find about studying this kind of microculture, is the fact that they create something mm-hmm. um, that they create a fantastical world, and more importantly, they create their own model of culture. Uh, you know, so they create these fantasy worlds or these kind of like mytho historical worlds. You know, these like um, chivalry and sorcery apparently is set in like 1100 ish France mm-hmm. or, you know, something very close to that. And so fine, basically, uh, you know, one of the reasons he's so fascinated with the tabletop role players is that they exist in like American culture of the 1970s. And then there's like this little subset that's, uh, that, that is the tabletop role players, but then there's a subset of them and it's their like little heuristic or model that they create, which is their own fictions, mm-hmm. you know, and then the fantastical cultures. This is why he loves Tecumel or thinks Tecumel is so interesting is that it models. It, it's like this little reflective thing. Like you were talking about, it's this little mirror that mirrors the subculture. And then the subculture also is in distinction from in some ways and then mirrors the macro culture. Yeah. Uh, so th- there, there are a lot of similarities, uh, in the ways that Fine thinks about tabletop role-playing games and the ways that I tend to think and talk about Homestuck. I'll say that. Mm, mm. Well, it, it, you know, and it's also uh, similar ways that, uh, you know, maybe this is a sociological impulse because I, I really thought a lot about the Pierce book, um, Communities mm, of Play, mm-hmm. when we were reading this, right? Which is like, by looking at the artifacts and looking at the works and then looking at the ways people talk to one another, you can say something about both the subculture and the macroculture. Right. Right, like... Um, and I mean, fine, basically is saying that, right. That, that you, you can know the world by its works. Mm -hmm. Um, and that by seeing what they make, you can learn more about the tabletop role players as well and seeing how they make characters and how they attach themselves to characters, how they attach themselves to worlds, how they comport themselves within aesthetic frameworks. You know, what is, what is good fantasy? What is good science fiction? Um, it's really funny to me, just as a big kind of, uh, meta note, how little D and D matters here? Mm-hmm. Was did did uh, did you feel a way about that? I I didn't feel a way, but I did think it was interesting. Uh, there there are a couple of things that are interesting about this book from the perspective of history. In that, D and D is important certainly, but it's uh, not the foregone conclusion of being like it is not the game. It is clearly right. not the game. We talk about so many other games. We have people playing other games. There, are, like, there's a game in here, a science fiction game called Traveler, mm-hmm. that I think is uh, mentioned very briefly in uh, some of the other stuff we've read, but never really talked about to any extent. And it's actually, strangely enough, kind of maybe the least talked about here, but we still get uh, quite a bit of it um, compared. Well, uh, what What's so interesting about Traveler? Just sorry to, yeah. to jump in really quick, but what's so interesting about Traveler is that you're right. During the book itself, we we really only know about Traveler like when he plays Traveler. Mm-hmm. You know, so he talks about favoritism and friendships and all that kind of stuff, and Traveler shows up there. But in the methodological note, which is why I wish it was at the at the top or the appendix, he says that when he joined the club or when he started going regularly, uh, Traveler was the most uh, popular game. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating to me that there was a moment in Minneapolis, right? Like in the Midwest, the northern part of the Midwest, the the hotbed of, you know, a D&D's explosion, right? And and tabletop role playing's explosion. And there was a moment when Traveler, this like very difficult and weird science fiction game was the most important one. Mm-hmm. Um I, the the thing that I have wanted to write about now after reading these three books is that science fiction tabletop games were just as important and maybe more important for the development of this genre than fantasy was. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so fascinating to me how much the assumptions of science fiction are welded into all these fantasy games and fine really gives you a good picture of it. Mm-hmm. But sorry to sorry to de- de- detour us off into something else. Well, I'm we're saying that that was actually where I wanted to go with it was that there there was this point in the methodological section where he mentioned that it was the most popular game. And I thought, oh, of course, right, because Star Wars has just happened. Right, right. Um, and uh, like Star Trek every, shows up every... here a couple times, too, as, as an important influence. Um, but I thought like like you said, I think that that is really interesting because uh, it suggests that the situation on the ground um, historically was maybe not what we would imagine kind of looking back from, you know, the, you know, D&D's throne of skulls. Right. A hundred percent. Well, did you also notice that basically it, it seems like to hear Dave Arneson tell it, the reason that magic exists in D&D as it does is because of Star Trek? Yes. Yes. I wanted to talk about that. That is so, uh, so fascinating. It, it is so right. The the example that's given there's a long quotation from Arneson uh, in the book somewhere in the middle, and Arneson is talking about when in the war gaming stuff that he was doing. I think that he was also doing with Dave Wesley. This is uh, uh, in my copy. This is on pages uh, thirteen and fourteen. Thirteen and fourteen. Maybe we can just read the whole thing because it's um, thing. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll I'll read it here. Um, th- this is the whole thing. So this is in 1968. Um, I would, this is just Arneson talking. I would have to give a lot of credit to another local gamer, Dave Wesley. He was the first one to input role-playing. The first game that stands out in my mind is Little Medieval Games, a very dull period of war games. He had a dull set of rules, and after our second game, we were bored to spice it up. Dave, who had been doing the setups and refereeing for miniature battles, gave each of us a little personal goal in the battle. And then it it continues on to uh, the rest of the interview. There's a gap here. Uh, Well, that kind of got us thinking about, wasn't that neat? And we did a couple of other games with various people. Let's have a big medieval campaign with half a dozen different people playing with little powers with 50 or 60 men, and then your king or the knight or whatever. And it developed from there. That got us into role-playing. As far as the fantasy part, I was the first one to come up with a violation of the basic concept of warfare of the period. We were fighting an ancient game. Very dull again. And I'd given the de- the defending brigands a druid high priest, and in the middle of the ba- battle, the dull battle, the Roman war elephant charged the Britons and looked like he was going to trample half their army flat. The druidic priest waved his hands and pointed this funny little box out of one hand and turned the elephant into so much barbecue meat. This upset all the participants in the game a great deal, <laughs> and the fellow playing the druidic high priest was, well, he was laughing his head off in a corner. That was absolutely the only thing in the game that was out of the ordinary, but they weren't expecting it, and it was, of course, Star Trek was then playing. Firing a phaser was adding science fiction to an ancient game. So the the, the to hear Arneson tell it, right, the invention or the novelty of magic, uh, you know, destructive magic, you know, casting a fireball into the opposite army, really just started with a Star Trek phaser mm-hmm. <laughs> as a joke. Um, and, uh, you know, that's pretty, pretty interesting to me as a science fiction scholar. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting here is how uh, uh, Fine has no problem, like, the, the word DM, or rather the phrase DM, right, Dungeon Master, even Game Master, does not show up here. Uh, the person fulfilling that structural role is constantly referred to by Fine as the referee. Which, of course, right. uh, in the Peterson book we talk about is like the old term, right? It's the term that comes out of uh, wargaming and, and simulations. Uh, you know, the, the person who had that role would be the referee. Um, and I do think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, the that Fine is writing this has no problem using the word referee. But that's a word that falls out of the parlance of the hobby. Um, I think there's something significant there about uh, the hobby trying to distance itself from sports or whatever, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and I honestly think we should go back to it. We should just start referring to GMs as referees. Call them refs. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. yeah they got to wear the shirt. Yep. And they got to wear that stripy shirt. Mm -hmm. They, they got to wear a full face mask. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, and they, got, they get to have the little whistle uh, from, from hockey. Yes. Uh, Combine but, uh, all the best parts their... of all referees. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. You know, because the whistle for hockey, you know, it's like stuck to their hand or whatever. It's that weird glove thing. Yeah, uh, that's that's the good stuff. Uh, so they don't have to grip it. I uh, yeah, no, I think that's interesting. And also, this book is coming out in '83, which is by that point, all of these terms are very controversial, right? Even if they weren't, they're not controversial, but they're in the mix. You know, there's no set of perfectly agreed upon terms and. As you're saying, referee seems to have fallen out of favor by that point. And, um, you know, referee, I think, attaches it mostly to wargaming. And I think Fine, even though he doesn't really say this, he thinks probably there's more still stapled onto wargaming. Um, you know you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think he sees that genetic code as being much more similar than maybe some of the players did at the time, as we see through Peterson. Oh, absolutely. Uh, One of the really interesting things about this book, Broad Strokes, is how, like, uh, there are places where you wish he did this more, um, but there are places where Fine kind of pushes on what the players say uh, in ways that suggest that he does not think. Like, I mean, basically, he says that the uh, uh, relationship between your tabletop player uh, and sort of like the way that they imagine violence in the game and sort of like then the stereotype of violence uh, in the game is all kind of this weird, like, move of denial, right? That players deny that games are violent. But then he's like, well, I played a lot of games and they were incredibly violent. And I think it's interesting that all of the guys who play these games are constantly insisting that it's not the case. They, I do love that he he'll do that and he'll be like, "Well, here's what I wrote down." <laughs> and yeah. it's like a full play. It's a full page of the worst things you've ever heard a person say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I, I mean, we'll talk about that. The I do think that something that is fascinating to me is that in Peterson, you would get the sense that the way that people played at the time was mostly fairly um, unextreme. Right. Mm -hmm. And that like when someone was a sadist, you know, we remember we talked about the player in that Peterson book who like wrote about their sadism and torturing the orcs and, you know, resurrecting people and torturing them and things like that. And I, I think from that book, I got the picture that at the time that was way out of the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, that that was like someone doing their thing. And to read Gary Allen Fine, you would get the sense that, no, that's not the case, that that kind of behavior could pop up in any given game, and it would not be shocking to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that's pretty interesting. I think that there there might be some... It, it points to the two different angles of methodological approach, right? I mean, look, here's what Game Study Study Buddies is for in a basic <laughs> way, right? 
Uh, sociology with participant observer interaction, right? And, and uh, participant observer research. Uh, that puts someone in a time and a place and then they write down what they hear or they take notes on what they hear and see and experience and then they contextualize it, right? That, that's what that method does in a broad sense in um, anthropology, sociology, cultural studies, those fields. Um, what Peterson does, right, is historical work and it's historical work that is attached to certain artifacts and methodologically you can only say what the artifact tells you, right? Like you can't construct information without going and doing some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Peterson in that book does go do some other stuff, like interview people, things like that. Um, but it, this really demonstrates like how far each thing can go. I don't think that, that fine gives you a very good picture of what role playing is at the time. Um, in the sense that we know lots of other weird stuff is happening through Peterson by looking at the same material that's being published at the time that that Fine is writing, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, we know for a fact that Fine gives us a partial picture. We also know for a fact that Peterson is giving us a partial picture <laughs> based on what Fine tells us, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a really good demonstration of like what in academia, right, we talk about or in scholarship we talk about as method, right? Methods have costs and benefits to them. Um, uh, each method gives you a particular kind of thing. And so, um, you know, if you're not an academic, if you haven't gone through this training, if you just listen to the show, hello, thanks for listening to the show. But this is a really good example. If you, if you read Peterson and think about the information that you get there, and then you read fine and think about the information that you get there, you know, they, they create a Venn diagram, but despite the fact that they are on basically the exact same subject, they are writing about functionally the exact same period in time, you know, the emergence of tabletop role-playing games. The overlap between them and what they're able to speak about is actually pretty small. The you know the Venn diagrammy part of the Venn diagram is pretty thin, uh, despite being books on basically the same topic. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think it's it's a thing that's worth thinking about, right? That that when you read a book that is about a particular moment in time and a culture in a particular moment in time, the method determines what you're going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know what you can say about it, what can, you can speak about it. I think this is something that comes up quite often in some of the response to our other shows, like just King Things or Homestuck Made This World. Um, that you know, in those shows, we kind of do some mixed methods um, stuff that's that's heavily uh, informed by close reading strategies, right? Just like looking at the thing, looking at form, stuff like that. But um, you know, when we bring in other methods, they don't determine the full thing you can say about the object. They just give you a little, you know, uh, subset of, of statements you can make. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know. Anyway, this role-playing game, um, uh, uh, RPG unit that we've done, I think has done a very good job of giving us some demonstrations of how method works. That's my two minutes on method. Michael, you want to talk about the introduction? Um, I mean, the introduction is basically all the stuff that we just did, uh, I mean, not even all of that, but uh, fine kind of laying out again, like, what am I up to here? What are the things I want to look at? Um, one thing that's really interesting is how his description of FRP, right, fantasy role playing. Uh, right. It is uh, it, it, he talks about like, you know, you may wonder why I'm writing about this because it's such a small uh, subculture with like negligible economic impact, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is just really interesting, again, from a historical perspective to think about today, uh, where, of course, you know, like, I don't think D&D &D is, is uh, necessarily a massive driver of culture writ large, um, but has been fitted into and has expanded to become uh, so much more of like a, a 
uh, you know, tentpole or pillar of like, I don't know, quote unquote, nerd or geek culture or what have you, right? The fact that there's, uh, you know, tabletop Twitter uh, at all um, suggests uh, how much the situation on the ground has changed from you know, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, but he basically has three goals to time to, to, you know, kind of look at this this little slice of uh, urban America, right? He, he talks about this as an urban leisure culture. Um so he wants to just describe and analyze it, right? This is a thing that exists. I want to talk about it in kind of an academic sense. Uh, that's thing number one. Thing number two, uh, he wants to understand how, like, uh, social systems uh, in these groups impact both the way that they uh, are structured or get formed um, and then how these groups like or these ideas reproduce themselves. Uh, and then how do people in these groups kind of generate meaning about themselves, about their activities and their hobbies? And how does that square with kind of their their larger place in the world? Right. This idea, again, that you can take a, a little sliver of uh, sociality and read out from that into the broader culture or at least get some sense for how people are making themselves fit into broader culture. Um, part of the method here is, uh, he also introduces for this introduction, uh, ideas of engrossment, um, which is kind of his version of immersion, but actually, and maybe we'll say more about this later. I don't know how you feel, Cameron. I actually feel like engrossment is the word that I'm looking for when, uh, I'm looking for an alternative to talking about immersion in any game because engrossment, uh, seems to carry less baggage with it because as as fine uses it engrossment as he tends to use it not always uh it's like a a way of talking about how we pay attention to things and how we can kind of like subdivide our attention paying capacities um mm -hmm. so for fine like when you're playing D&D &D, he finds this right this is like one of his his kind of planks um that you engross yourself across kind of three levels of, uh, like, frames. And we'll get to that when we talk about Goffman later, because uh, that's where that terminology is coming from. Um, but the first one is, like, common sense reality, quote-unquote, right? That's what uh, uh, Fine calls it. So just, you know, the world around us, the world that we're existing in. Um, so that's mm -hmm. one level. Then there is the second level, uh, or the second frame, of gaming rules. Like, what are the rules that determine, uh, you know, valid action within the game that you're playing? Um, and then the third level is the content of the game fantasy itself, right? Like the sort of uh, th uh, thing on the other side of the rules. The other way of thinking about this maybe is that we have a common sense reality and we have like the content of the game fantasy. And in Fine's kind of apparatus here, the gaming rules are sort of the mediating abstraction uh, that determine what is it that is actually happening, quote unquote, in the game. Uh, and for Fine, uh, when you're playing D&D, &D, you are operating on all three of these levels simultaneously uh, with different personae. So the person who exists in common sense reality is not quite the persona that you take when you're approaching the rule set, which is not quite the persona that you take when you're a character or like you're, you're role playing a character in the game. Um, and so uh, the other kind of like fallout here for Fine is to think about what does like what does it mean that uh, when we're playing these games or when people are playing these games for the aesthetic experience to happen for it to work, uh, you have to be able to like uh, adopt 
a a sort of like alternative personality, right? Or as he puts it uh, on page four, to an active fantasy self. And this is, quote, they must lose themselves to the game. I would quibble with some of that, but I understand what he's going for. The engrossment is not total or continuous, right? And this I would agree with, uh, but it is what provides for the fun within the game. And maybe more quibble there, because this is this is another thing that Fine says, and he, this comes up quite explicitly later. Uh, Fine has a theory of fun, and that theory of fun is like just pretending, right? To pretend is <laughs> fun for Fine, and I'm not saying that it's not fun, but I think that's interesting, right? It's, it's something that I have, uh, like it's an idea that gets passed to me by this book, and I sort of hold it, and I want to look at it and sort of turn it around in my hands, uh, because Fine does say this, I think, maybe in chapter six or something, um, that fun is just the experience of consciously turning away from seriousness. Mm-hmm. And so having this kind of, like, playing a game in which you get to subdivide your attention into kind of these different personae uh, is fun in Fine's model, precisely because it is uh, essentially escapism, right? It's it's taking an actual situation of your life and pretending it was otherwise, right? Yeah, I I I also find engrossment to be a better term than immersion, and it's actually really disappointing to me that he does such a a clear amount of work here at the very beginning to say like, here's engrossment, here's how it works, or these kind of different levels and things like that. And then in its actual application throughout this book is it's functionally identical to immersion. Yeah. Um, you know, it, uh, the, it, it very quickly turns into like losing yourself in play and mm-hmm. losing yourself as a mm-hmm. character and not knowing what the, the divide is between those two things. Right. Uh, you know, the, I think one of the examples where it gets where I really started feeling that was uh, he's talking about someone later who, uh, due to a percentile role, ends up stabbing an enemy in the groin. Mm hmm. And then feels bad about it for like a week later and is like calling everyone in the party and they're like, hey, I my character never would have stabbed you in the groin. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry about that. It's, that's a low blow. It's not cool. Um, and, uh, you know, you know what I mean? So like engrossment is such a complicated kind of tiered system or, or little network of ideas here that very quickly is emptied out mm-hmm. of all of that complication in the actual application. So, I, you know, I think... Um, I like engrossment in its definition, but it seems to me that engrossment in its application often just turns into what would, you know, way later just become a synonym for immersion. Um, Again, you know, I'm more interested in what a game does to a person than what like a person thinks they're doing in relationship to a game. So the word discipline makes way more sense to me uh, than than anything else. Right. So I got a little bit of, you know, mm, uh, resistance in my heart still. if only because I, even when he describes engrossment, I don't really find, you know, I, that descriptive apparatus really doesn't feel a way to me, right? I, I, in the same way that when people describe immersion, I just don't feel that thing. Engrossment, I feel some of these things, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, same. And so, it re- you know, it really doesn't do my thing. But I really like it, and I like the idea that there's a sense of tears, mm-hmm. and I like the idea that um, what engrossment gets at, it, what's fascinating, I guess, is that we could immediately read engrossment, uh, you know, as you just did here, as a uh, alternate or alternative or competing term with immersion. But uh, about halfway through the book, I realized that oh, engrossment is just as much a competing term with like the magic circle mm-hmm. as that as it gets used. And if I were going to like you know employ engrossment in my own work, and and I probably will going forward, but 
If I did that, I would actually use it to talk about the phenomenon that often gets called the magic circle, right? Which is that um, already in 1983, the magic circle is completely obliterated, right? <laughs> like, like of course, all of the, I mean, this book in and of itself is a very compelling critique of any kind of magic circle ideas that you could have, yeah. right? That like... Of course, there's game rules. Of course, there are people who mediate those. Of course, the player themselves is mediating those things. What matters is not to say that that happens, which is so apparent as to not need statement, right? You don't you don't need to say that games are not exactly the real world, but also they're shot through. They're they're Swiss cheese with the w- real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the same thing about engrossment here. I think engrossment's a really good term for talking about that. What gets built on top of the world we already live in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with that out of the way, do you want to talk about the first chapter, which is just about fantasy role-playing? Ferp. Ferp. Uh, I think another thing, actually, to flag about this book that's really important, and, uh, the fact that there were all these, uh, tabletop games being played in a, like, you know, the the community room at the police station speaks to this, uh, Mm -hmm. is that this is, this is before D&D gets centralized, I think, in the imagination by the satanic panic part of the 80s right because uh when fine taught like fine has this kind of historical genealogy for fantasy role-playing games and unsurprisingly uh he sees them as kind of developing out of the wargaming culture uh which we've talked about before with peterson uh, uh particularly um sort of educational or kind of like uh almost like technocratic simulations um and then very interestingly, and this is where I think like the the satanic panic would have changed the the register of this quite a bit. Uh, the psychological phenomenon of folia du, uh, like kind of like basically um, a, a collaborative or like multi person delusions, uh, mm-hmm. which he is not saying that like you know playing a tabletop game is like both of you being uh, uh, mentally ill or having a delusion or whatever, uh, but he is saying that like the the way that you talk about it uh the way that the players talk about it right uh and sort of like the the fundamental facts of like what you end up doing of people sitting around a table and arguing about like do we know where the white lodge is and do we know who lives there which it's like you know a completely made up thing um that there's something like evocative or resonant between folia do and kind of these sorts of activity um but i definitely thought that that was maybe the the most interesting aspect of the genealogy here and also really in in the end the one that is less talked about but i think that's just a fact of he's not doing psychological assessments of all these people it's just kind of like a little piece that gets put in there yeah just so i was just looking you know uh, one of the big kind of uh dnd part of the root of the satanic panic uh part of the root of the kind of turning of public opinion on dnd is you know, James Dallas Egbert Mm -hmm. disappearing and that entire thing. And that was 79. Um, And it became a national news story um, in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And so it it actually is kind of interesting that that Fine is not having to deal with it. Although it looks like that William Deere's book, The Dungeon Master, that like really kind of went wide about it, Mm -hmm. uh, was 84. So so it might have been right after this book came out. But Mm -hmm. anyway, very interesting. Although Mazes and Monsters came out in 81... Huh. And Mazes and Monsters it turns into the Tom Hanks film yeah. that like really gets some of that going in '82. So I, I I don't know. It is interesting. I think that that uh, any of that kind of like backlashy stuff is totally non-present. Um, but uh, I think this might be a record. Forty forty five minutes in or so, we're on page eight. Great.
Great. Uh, there's a historical set of notes here in the FRP chapter that is very familiar to anyone who has listened to the past couple shows. Um, fantasy role-playing games come out of the wargaming community. They emerge in a very particular kind of way. You can read John Peterson's books uh, or uh, literally watch one of 10 billion YouTube videos to, to learn about <laughs> this part. Um, I, we don't, we're, we're not going to go over it here. Uh, but uh, basically, it comes out of wargaming and wanting to add more kind of um, additional layers to the wargaming stuff, and role-playing comes out of that. Um, and eventually... Um, turns into several different competing games, the most uh, weighty of which, for, at least for in our time now, is probably D&D. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's this. I mean, the, the first chapter is basically this kind of history. Uh, the other note just to, to think about is he uses Thomas Kuhn uh, and his ideas of like paradigm shifts to describe how all of the pieces for fantasy role playing were kind of latent in the things that came before in wargaming and so on. Uh, and it's really uh, what has happened is uh, all of these disparate things that were part of other things like locked together in a certain formation that gave rise to this new thing called fantasy role playing. And that's just kind of his model for understanding where, where FRP comes from. Right. Um, did you have more to say about that or can we just move to chapter two? I don't think so. He, in this chapter, he does kind of talk about this uh, subculture, sub society stuff that we've already talked about that shows up again uh, later in the book. Um, that, oh, uh, a thing that you have marked out on page 33 here, and it, it, I think it's like 31 through 35 is questions of centralization mm -hmm. that are pretty interesting here. I, and we're not, we don't have to get into it, but there is this kind of discussion about where does authority emanate from in the tabletop role-playing game, mm -hmm. right? So like who determines what matters? And so there's this kind of discussion and, and fine gets into it of like, well, for some fantasy role-playing game experiences, it's your referee, right, who's making their own little fantasy world. And for some of them, it's deferring to the D&D &D books or the chivalry and sorcery books. And, um, you know, there are these kind of questions of that in a general sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like, where in the table, in the world where we're fantasizing and making all the shit up, where does authority emanate from? And there's a really funny little anecdote here that you also marked out that Gygax got a letter asking him how many how many uh, eggs does a hippogriff lay? <laughs> and and I think essentially he was like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't ask me that. Like, you figured out yourself, right? So there's this kind of, um, you know, it, that we talked about also in the Peterson book that Gygax basically says with D&D &D and, and the D&D &D creators generally go make your own game. It's more of a toolkit of making your own game than it is a game in and of itself, which is not what happens with AD&D. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's we dig a little bit into M.A.R. Barker, but I think we're going to save him for later. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's laying out the history of fantasy role-playing in the 10 years or so, yeah. uh, you know, that, that it, that's pulling from. Mm -hmm. uh chapter two is just called players and it's about uh it's kind of like almost a demographic assessment uh and what i mean i don't think there's anything surprising here exactly uh fine comes out like he he surveys kind of uh some magazines like enthusiast magazines that have done their own surveys uh trying to figure out what the demographics of the readership are and he says it seems like they tend to be like 
you know, adolescent or young adult men with uh, lots of free time, some college education. Uh, and this uh, coincides with his own experiences around various tabletops. Um, he works through a bunch of kind of ideas about, you know, like uh, he says something like a, a tabletop players uh, flatter themselves by saying that they're more uh, intelligent than the general population. Uh, and that is precisely what he says is that they flatter themselves but he thinks that's really he, he he doesn't say it outright but he kind of like feels the contours of the emerging nerd masculinity right as a kind of wounded or like a, a non-standard masculinity and this is actually one of those things that i think is really interesting is how much uh his analysis does fold into that right that these are these are smart kids smart boys largely boys uh, you know, they may not be more intelligent than the general population, but they make a virtue of intelligence in a particular way and in, uh, knowing about particular types of things. I think this is the chapter where we get like the seven things that it's useful to know about. And it's like a uh, real world esotericism, like medieval history, military history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we get that, um, we also have uh, the first thing that's like, you know, the, the stereotype is that these people tend toward kind of like violence and mayhem in their games. And this is a thing that they deny. And yet, nevertheless, whenever I play these games, uh, there's quite a bit of violence and mayhem. So I think that there's something happening here where uh, they're using the fantasy world to like disculpate themselves or exculpate themselves of like these feelings, right? They don't want to admit that they have these feelings of violence. And so they enact them in the game and then say that the game doesn't really count. Um, uh, he also kind of pushes on, not pushes on, that's not the, the right way to talk about it. Um, fine does key into the issues with gender and specifically like the ways mm -hmm. that these groups talk about women. Um, and, uh, basically right with all that violence and mayhem that's going on, there's a lot of sexual assault happening to female NPCs. And, uh, sort of, you know, uh, he literally calls it at one point, like locker room talk, uh, and in that methodology chapter that comes at the end, what I think is really interesting there is that that's where he says, like, this kept happening and it was the thing that made me feel the weirdest. Like, I didn't push back on it because I was, you know, like in this like participant observer kind of situation. Um, but it was the sort of thing that like when it came up, I just kind of like, you know, laughed uneasily and like pushed the situation, like pushed the conversation forward so we didn't have to dwell on it uh, or like, you know, he didn't like engage with it but uh, i think it's notable that he brings this up pretty frequently and then like at the end of the book says this is what made me uncomfortable yeah i mean basically he says we, we alluded to it earlier right but, but he basically says that in the in a huge number of fantasy role-playing games that he was a part of and saw that uh the the players who were mostly male i mean he says that um that women might comprise maybe five to ten percent of the activity mm-hmm just generally based on you know, like the audience surveys that that are a part of and look we we also have to think about like the fact that if you are within a culture that is dominated by one group uh if there are questions of voluntary surveys to revealing yourself you might not voluntarily reveal yourself right so right. uh you know five to ten percent of people who report you know we have to do that uh, kind of thing but so maybe it was quite a bit more right who knows um it, it, in some ways like we it's in some ways, the data is so insufficient as to not actually be able to give us a good number. But of, mm -hmm. of reporting people who care, 5 to 10%. But 
he says that in fantasy role planes, you you see a huge number of just straight up murdering every single figure who appears, um, who is not a player. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, NPCs murdering children, uh, and then a massive number, uh, a massive amount of fantasy sexual assault um and doing that as a victory condition um and so you know they're very much within a fantasy logic right maybe a dark fantasy logic um but this is part of their fantasy role play is to do this kind of thing to uh on mass murder other human beings and then to uh take women as trophies Mm -hmm. um and, uh, I mean, I can't imagine that happening at a table today that like I was a part of, I, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't think I would ever play a game or even stumble into a game with people who think this is okay. I do think tabletop role playing game culture has generally changed where that would be seen as quite weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this time, at this moment, fine is saying, no, this is standard play. This yeah. is like what happens in a, in a D and D or in a tabletop fantasy game. Um, and, uh, that sucks, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like that's bad. Yeah. Now, and he gets into, uh, like what are, what are sort of the justifications that people have for playing these games? And he says that there are four kind of main theme themes that emerge, uh, when people are justifying their involvement. Uh, they are, and this is on page 53, the educational components of gaming, gaming as an escape from social pressure, games as aids in increasing one's sense of personal control or efficacy, and then games as aids in dealing with people. Uh, so mm-hmm. he also is, uh, you know, sort of relying on, and I don't think like uh, uh, unwarrantedly, uh, you know, springboarding off of this idea of like, this is a bunch of like socially awkward young men. And in fact, he, he goes, uh, this is on page 46. <clears throat> um, like, like the gamer, right. The, as he calls them, the gamers are very clearly positioned against like American mass culture quote, mm-hmm. his fantasy life is passive deriving. He's like describing like your typical gamer, his fantasy life is passive deriving from television, violence, sports, and the undulations of the sex goddesses of primetime entertainment. Rarely do gamers discuss television shows or sports. And when they discuss sex, it is in the context of the game, not in the context of the real world. Um, mm-hmm. So gaming emerges as this kind of uh, compensatory mechanism uh, for these people who are largely socially awkward to kind of uh, talk to one another, navigate around one another, and find something that they can talk about together uh, that is, uh, like, because they are sort of implicitly cutting themselves off, cutting themselves off from uh, things like talking about what they saw on TV last night or, like, the local sports team and things like that. Um and then uh, he also tries to dig down into, you know, why why aren't women as present in the hobby? Uh, and one is the characteristics of women. That's on page 62, and it's a direct quote. Um, uh, the process of recruitment into the gaming world and the reactions of men to the presence of women and female characters in the gaming scenario, uh, which we already just, uh, you know, covered with the fantasy sexual assault. So then working backward, uh, one of the other things that Fine discovers uh, is that these young men are finding out by uh, about D&D or about tabletop through other young men, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, he, he like is trying to figure out how did, when did you first hear about FRP? Where did you first hear about FRP? And everyone is basically like, you know, a friend of a friend or like my friend who like joined a game one time, thought it was really cool. And then he brought me the next time, or then he brought, bought his own set. And then we played a game with our other friends. And so there's a, uh, you know, a word of mouth function here that, 
uh, Fine thinks, uh, because it is kind of like progressing through these uh, social circles for young men, like women aren't really getting uh, pulled into it in quite the same way. Um, and then he actually talks with a, a couple of women who are like peripheral to some of these settings, like like the girlfriends or wives of some of the refs and things. And there's like one woman who says like, oh, it's just like uh, uh, not enough. Or it's it's a boy thing, right? Like mm-hmm. as a girl, I'm just not interested in like. I think she actually specifically says I don't have enough imagination or something. Um, and then there's some like really weird uh kind of like childhood sociology research that's cited that talks about how like boys just play different from girls because they they have like they play for longer and have more involved like imaginative scenarios, um, which I think is all stuff that we would like question uh very very strongly if this were a more recent book uh we'll just going to question it i think maybe in the abstract here because it's a book from 1983 and i don't know what fine was working with and kind of like where the discipline stood on on having this kind of meta awareness to uh you know really question some of the gender assumptions and at any rate i don't think it's the primary reason that uh he stumbles upon or like focuses in on he really does i think seem to think that it makes a lot of sense that women don't want to play these games where all of this fantasy sexual assault is constantly happening. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, basically what he's saying is that, uh, uh, women are acculturated differently. Yeah. Um, and sure, I guess. Right. I, I, I mean, I think with that kind of claim, uh, you know, maybe not in 1983, but I think we could find just as much evidence that that is not the case. Right. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, we, we could, uh, in, in debate lingo, right. We could just flow that the other way. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's plenty of evidence. I think at this point that demonstrates just, this is just false. And also the, the hobby itself has become, uh, quite a bit more diversified, uh, lo- a lot more people who are not this particular subset of young men, uh, play the game. And that's not necessarily because just, you know, uh, acculturation happened differently. Although certainly <laughs> acculturation is quite different in the United States, at least, um, mm-hmm. you know, from the late 1970s until it is now. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, in, in, in a broad sense, I think I would just say that maybe this is historically useful for demonstrating a difference here, but I think more than likely this is just, he's working with what he's got and it's not a compelling argument. Um, I think the more, much more compelling case to me is that if you sit down at a table (laughs) and try to play this game, what kinds of things are you going to hear and what kinds of ways are men going to talk about women? Uh, or just anyone who isn't them in their particular subset of people, and uh, they're going to dehumanize them at the table, um, yeah. you know, quite a bit. As you, this is uh, on page sixty-five that you pulled out. Quote: uh, "Is a quote of uh, quote male players comment that female characters should be treated as property and not as human beings." End mm-hmm. quote. Right. So, like, I think that if you sit down at that table and you're not one of these these uh, kind of uh, enfranchised players, right. Uh, uh, I think you're going to have a bad time. And look, uh, a thing that's just missing from this book entirely is any kind of discussion of race, mm-hmm. uh, ability, uh, you know, any other kind of uh, social uh, interacting, you know, mediating thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very curious about, I mean, we we know, no, I'm not curious, I guess, because we know for a fact that some of these people are Vietnam veterans. Yeah. Some of these people are uh, right-wingers who are coming out of the Vietnam era. I mean, mm-hmm. he explicitly says that, right? That yeah. they're uh, right-wing conservatives. And, you know, they're saying racial slurs at the table. Um, you know, he quotes from a couple of these people. 
Um, I do think it's very funny that Fine says that, hey, you go to these events and you find people who are like hard right wing people, you know, it, it, as, as hard as you can get. And you have people who are draft dodgers and they talk to each other and they like engage with each other. So we probably should say that the uh, the average player is somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as if like those are the two. Those are the ideological poles. And uh, just in between those two people is everyone else. Yeah, I think that's very funny. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, I would say, I, I would say you know in a general sense, I think what Fine argues is like there's a passive misogyny and probably a huge racial component to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know that Aaron Trammell is working on a book that's specifically about this. You know, about the emergence of role playing games or the early moments of role playing games and race specifically, I believe, and a suburban middle classness. And so I'm very curious to see what kind of archival work that that uh, Aaron comes out with um, in the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chapter three is called Collective Fantasy. uh, And this is interesting because it is kind of about not not really the meta structure of the game. Uh, Actually, maybe that is the good way to put it. Like it starts out talking about like the referee and how the referee is kind of like theoretically this god figure who has total control over uh, everything that's happening at the table. Uh, and then it kind of moves into, well, how, like, what are the, the values or like what, uh, Fine calls kind of the American folk ideas that get smuggled into tabletop play in this way, right? Like what are kind of the, 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 the background ideas and values that all of the springs off of, um, and then how do players like interface with those ideas like the uh one of the other ways to think about this is like the the folk ideas are the things that the players and the uh referee both take kind of for granted um and then how do they negotiate around one another when kind of structurally the game would suggest that uh it is always going to be players against the referee right because there's kind of like this uh structural asymmetry there um and like, how do they then work together in ways that are both hostile, but also not hostile? Uh, and how do like players kind of understand their own strategies for asserting control in situations where, uh, in theory, right, they can always be overruled or what have you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I I thought this was an interesting chapter. Um, I don't. It does not look like I wrote very much <laughs> notes about it. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 it was basically like, do you not know what TTRPGs are? <laughs> I mean, kind of, right? Yes. I, there are some really cool, like, little practices here, like all the stuff about like when a dice becomes lucky or unlucky, uh-huh. um, which I really do associate with a certain like. Maybe this is wrong, but a certain era of gamer, you uh-huh. know, the people, you know, the D and D players who I learned to play D and D with, so people who are like a ten years, fifteen years older than I am, they really like these things. So, so they would have been people who learned to play in the late eighties, early nineties. They really had this going on, uh-huh. uh huh. And I don't have any of this. Like, I have no belief in dice superstitions or anything like that. I don't switch out dice. I carry for anything like this. I carry one or two sets of dice with me, and I just use them, you know, kind of interchangeably. I did not inherit that, and I don't think a lot of people my age inherited this either. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm. Although maybe I'm wrong. I, you know, just in my experience, I don't. I don't hear about this too often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was those were kind of the two historical things was uh, that like the dice superstition superstition stuff, which definitely does feel like a thing I've seen more mostly older players, very few players kind of like my age or younger um, 
uh, hewing to that. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was uh, Fine's observation that cheating is extremely common and allowed. Uh, which I think is something that probably just varies very much depending on your group, because I know the groups that I played with growing up, like uh, like what Fine is referring to is that like basically everyone understands that everyone fudges a dice roll now and then, and it's kind of okay. And it's only when you're like fudging them constantly or like clearly like angling them uh, that people really start to get irritated. Uh, and just like the, the group that I played with growing up like was so... Uh, uh, draconian about like dice rolls that it was just amazing to think that uh, fine played with enough groups that were okay with this that it that he could just say yeah like everyone's cheating constantly all the time and it's basically kind of allowed yeah I don't you know it's very interesting these things are still super you know controversial mm-hmm. uh, like what what does it mean to alter a dice roll you know uh, this is again you know we've talked about uh over the past couple books right like the things that you still see emanate as like a concern mm-hmm. uh in ttrpg discourse or the community or whatever that is right the people who play those games and you know every six months there's like a, a viral tweet that's like you you either must alter dice rolls or you cannot it's like ontologically uh-huh. you know not allowed right. to do so uh, <laughs> it is very interesting though something that i i think is a a fun thing to think about is that because i also you know like the like straight up cheating with a dice roll of like i rolled a one and i say i rolled an eight or whatever i don't i i just haven't experienced that very often in in my own play uh you know or playing with anyone um but i i think that is really interesting here is that he says that it's you know when um dms roll or referees roll they often roll in the open and they have no interest one way or the other in like what the dice says. And so, you know, it doesn't matter to them. So he, he hasn't seen very many like attempts by a referee to alter dice rolls. Um, and because it's like whatever happens happens and the, how the dice rolls, how they roll, right. They mm-hmm. are ultimately facilitating something rather than they are like crafting a story or whatever. And, you know, that's the thing that really has changed, right. You know, w- with kind of story forward or, um, uh, uh, GMs, DMs, who are thinking about, like, interesting moments and crafting really interesting experiences, right? You know, the general advice at this point is, like, uh, roll in the dark, right? Roll where your players can't see and then fudge some numbers. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if that monster's got one hit point left and someone did a really cool thing, maybe just kill the monster, right? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes for a more interesting experience. And I know that it's verboten to some players. They can't right. even understand that, that I have just committed the cardinal sin. And to that I say, I do not care. Please keep it to yourself. <laughs> um, but uh, you can play the game however you want to, and I can too. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but that's interesting to me is that if, if, if I would say in the, in the, uh, you know, teaching RPG discourse of 2022, where is it understood that dice rolls might get fudged? It's all on the referee side and very rarely, I think on the player side. Yeah. Uh, actually, I, I just want to lay out what the, the, the four American folk ideas that fine kind of distills down here. Cause I do think that they're sort of interesting. They're fascinating. Yeah. Uh, They are, one, the image of unlimited good. This is from page 76, just by the way. One, the image of unlimited good. Two, the sharply defined oppositional nature of the world. So, you know, good and evil. Uh, Three, the distinguishing of sexuality and evil. And four, the Puritan ethic and the non-random nature of luck. 
another follow-up thing here that I want to quote just because it it rules so much. Uh, Fine says, and uh, this is also page 76, quote, The structure of dungeons and fantasy worlds reflects the American image of a potentially unlimited supply of treasure. Yeah, what if America is the golden hole, Michael? Yeah, yeah, no, like I, I, I wrote here in my notes to Tocqueville get wrecked, um, <laughs> because like this is this is perhaps the most uh, precise and incisive uh, distillation of the American ethos for the contemporary moment that I can think of. Yeah, uh, the loot. Yep, <laughs> like it's it's just looting. Yep um but yeah absolutely right something from nothing and infinity from that something right right? unlimited Uh, good where good means wealth luxury treasure yeah no it it, yeah it's a fascinating kind of thing and and i really do like that fine it it, i it really doesn't show up in any particular moment it just kind of shows up repeatedly and i think you could like read through the book and pull all these together and, and make some interesting statements. But he talks often about dungeons that individual referees and individual players have designed, right? Mm-hmm. And that those dungeons have history to them. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if I have my, uh, you know, whatever, Crypt, Crypt of Creepies, and I say, Michael, let's play the Crypt of Creepies, and you play the Crypt of Creepies, and you go down and you kill the big creepy, mm-hmm. and, it, and you take the treasure out, I'm going to walk around with the Crypt of Creepies again. And uh, the first time I walk around with the Crypt of Creepies and a couple other players, you know, uh, Cowboy Michael and uh, Clown Michael, and they say, hey, we want to play the Crypt of Creepies. And I say, all right, let's do it. We spend four and a half hours playing the Crypt of Creepies. They get to the bottom. The big Creepy's not there. There's no treasure. It's been looted before. (laughs) Some (laughs) other guy came and did this before, right? This was the way that dungeons worked at the time. They were kind of like... They had history, right? Mm-hmm. They, you know, they were not there just for players. They were situated in, if not worlds, then at least, you know, as stable objects with historical conditions to them. And people thought that was terrible. <laughs> they did not like <laughs> yeah. that. And so eventually it became kind of a video game level, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, he's not using those those terms, but things respawned in them and they had more treasure and people would tinker up and down based on other people's responses to it. And I think that's really interesting that... History that the demands of gameplay and the demands of player desire trump a kind of historical or materialist approach to D anD D design or to dungeon design, uh, you know, fantasy role play design, and uh, in 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 terms of dungeons. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they really seem historically committed to creating these big worlds, right? That have conditions and people change things. And maybe this is a good place to talk about Checomel because that's its whole deal. Oh, that's right? the is that's that... the next chapter. Yeah. So so maybe yeah, yeah, maybe we just go right into that. I'm trying to look and see if there's anything that I want to say about this chapter, but I don't think I do. It's an interesting chapter, but it's really you know chapter three is mostly about like what was it like to play one of these games at the time, and I do think on basically every page there's an interesting little anecdote, mm-hmm. but um, you know uh, it it really is a picture of play. Whoa, here we are at the end of the episode, but actually appearing in the middle of the episode, so that means it must be time for an ad break. Woo! Ad break. Ad break. Uh, We're Range Touch. You're listening to Game Studies Study Buddies, and that is part of the Range Touch network. Uh, We do all sorts of things, all sorts of shows about uh, a, a handful of topics trying to show that uh, thinking hard about things can in fact be fun and rewarding. Uh, I know people tend to, tend to think of like, 
oh man, why would you, why would you read a book or have a feeling about a poem? That's Cameron. Cameron hates poetry. Uh, but, uh, I believe through all of our collective efforts, we can start a poetry podcast and, and show Cameron the truth of things. Is that right? Yeah. Give it a shot. Yeah. Sure, okay. I'll read poems. Yeah. Uh, but until then, uh, if you're listening to game study study buddies and you haven't checked out other things that we do, well, you may want to check out things like, uh, mages and murder dads where Cameron and uh, Danny work through the Baldur's Gate games and sort of the games in that lineage, right, uh, inspired by Baldur's Gate, uh, but also the show that Cameron and I do called Too Much Future, where we're doing um, sort of the main line at the moment Fallout series. We'll be starting Fallout 4 uh, this year uh, relatively soon, uh, and that's where we kind of deploy game studies, thoughts, and ideas uh, in order to make sense of what it's like to play these games and to kind of situate them in, in their history and kind of like the development of design throughout the decades and so on and so forth. Uh, it's a fun time. Uh, there's also the shows uh, Just King Things, where Cameron and I are reading through the books of Stephen King in publication order, and Homestuck Made This World, uh, about doing the same thing, but with the webcomic Homestuck and, and doing kind of cultural analysis of that. Um, all of these shows and more uh, have bonus content associated with them that you can get access to if you go to patreon.com slash range touch. And this includes things like, uh, in the case of Game Study Study Buddies, the notes that Cameron and I take for the show, right? We we write, we read these books, we have thoughts about them, we write up our notes and documents, and then we put those documents together and put them up for you to check out so you can kind of see our, our thought process as we work through these books. Uh, but there's also like just King Things bonus episodes where Cameron and I talk about uh, King film adaptations, uh, a monthly bonus podcast where uh, Cameron and Danny just talk about like whatever's going on, it seems like. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you get all these things and more if you kick us just a, a little bit of money at patreon.com slash range touch there's several tiers of support available and you can check those out and uh, choose whichever one suits you um, other things that you can do uh, is tell folks that you know about our shows these shows this network uh, you know give them a, a recommendation of what to listen to if you think that they'll like something that we're up to uh, and you can tell strangers uh, who don't know you at all, uh, what they might like about us. If you leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice, and in particular, if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review uh, that is positive and good and funny, then there is a chance that Cameron will read it out loud on an ad break, just like he's about to do now. This is from D. Mechasaurus, and it's really long. Uh, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, although I appreciate reading the whole thing. But I'm going to say this. Uh, this is from the middle of it. Game Study Study Buddies is so one-of-a-kind terrific in its fascinating discussions of game studies that I, an Android listener, spent 20 minutes recovering my iTunes password and reinstalling iTunes just so I could leave a review. <laughs> I'm middle-aged. 20 minutes is a lot of lost time. <laughs> I think that's good. I, you know, I believe you don't have to leave a review through iTunes. I think you can just uh, log into Apple Podcasts, by the way, G Macasaurus. But we appreciate the uh, review. And uh, my name is Grant has left a. Uh, did I read this on the thing? I, I don't know. I know you've read one from My Name is Grant before. Right. So this is from My Name is Grant. It's five stars. Of course, you got to leave a five star review to have me read it. But it's uh, books on tape are popular. But what if it was a book club on tape and they pick books your aunts have never heard of? <laughs> I think that's a new one. <laughs> Uh, my name is Grant's going back, deleting their previous reviews to write newer, funnier reviews. Awesome. Dang. Okay, well, uh, that's going to be it. Let's get back to the episode. Whee!
this next chapter, chapter four on Tecumel is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, so this came up in the Peterson book. Uh, but M.A.R. Barker, who was a professor of gosh, linguistics. I, yeah, linguistics like a, I think it was or he had a Ph.D. in linguistics and was in the Department of South Asian Asian Studies, I believe. Yes. Um, he uh, Wikipedia says this was an American linguist who was a professor of Urdu and South Asian studies at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. There was also some other stuff about him, Michael, that uh, you and I both discovered when we were like just Googling him in preparation for the episode. Yeah, because I think uh, this might have been mentioned in the Peterson book. I don't remember, but if it, if it came up, it didn't come up in such a way that I was like, oh, damn, that's something I want to follow up on. Uh because here it is like it is a uh, extremely important point that Barker is a professor. Uh, and as I said uh, earlier, uh, Fine is a, also a professor at this point at University of Minnesota. This is where also Barker is a professor. So there's mm-hmm. some like this is how that connection gets made, I think, is that Fine hears about tabletop games. He starts researching them. And then I think someone puts him on to like, hey, you know, like this guy over in, in, in uh, this other department is really into this. So I was and I thought that that was really interesting that this guy was himself a professor and like was carrying on a professorial career while also doing uh, this kind of like second run Tolkien thing uh, where he was taking this fantasy world that he'd had by his own kind of record. Uh, he, he'd been sort of like tinkering with this fantasy world since he was 10 years old. We know from the Peterson book that he'd been publishing you know, like zines and fan mm-hmm. things around it since the 1950s. Right. Right. So. So he'd been putting it, not just tinkering with it, but like writing things down for other people to read yeah. for 20 years. Yeah, and constructing its languages very much in the Tolkienian vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, this and it like sort of like this this desire to like construct languages in some way seems to determine like the, the career of his academics uh, where he becomes this professor of linguistics and he gets a Fulbright and he studies in India for however long. Um, so he has this entire setting uh, like a game system called Empire of the Petal Throne, which we talked about again in the Peterson book. And uh, Fine sits in on, I think, two different uh, groups who play this with Barker. Uh, and this game is repeatedly in this book described by other people as being like so uh, finely uh, uh, developed and so like sort of specifically written that uh, people believe that if you're not playing this game with Barker as your referee, you're not really playing it at all. Um, Mm -hmm. so all of this stuff, right, we get kind of like the walkthroughs of like how he has these two different groups and they kind of have two different orientations to the world and to the game. And this requires him to do different things. Uh, but the other really important thing about Barker that you and I learned, uh, already really alluded to at the first, uh, couple points. Um, uh, he was a neo-Nazi. Yeah. Like a straight up historical revisionist neo-Nazi who served on the board under his own name. Uh Uh-huh. Not a pseudonym, under his 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 actual name, uh, the Journal of Historical Review, which is is a kind of like not really academic but academic presenting journal that is basically about suggesting the Holocaust didn't happen. Yes, um, among other things, mm-hmm. right? But I, you know, that that's the deal. Uh, I mean, his entire life history is he's he's a strange person, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, or maybe not strange, but uh, but certainly like doing things other people didn't. So he went to college, did a Fulbright, went to India. Yep. 
Went to India, converted to Islam all in India. Mm -hmm. Which he Um, calls, and this is a direct quote from him, calls uh, just a more rational religion. Yeah, a more rational religion. So so M.A.R. Barker, it's Muhammad. Yeah. Uh, uh, His birth name was Philip. Um, And so, so yeah, he does that. uh, And then comes back, works on Tecumel, and then sometime in the 1980s becomes a straight-up neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe he was before then, but starts publishing as a neo-Nazi and, and being involved in that kind of stuff. And he wrote a novel called uh, the Ser- or called Serpent's Walk under a pseudonym, uh, Randolph Calverhall, mm-hmm. uh, that was published by the people who did the Turner Diaries, which is um, a you know extremely... Uh, infamous neo-Nazi work, uh, you know, heavily involved in, uh, or one of the things cited in the Oklahoma City bombing, mm-hmm. you know, as uh, it's a science fiction novel um, that it, that's a what if book, right? Um, so, uh, or uh, the Turner Turner Diaries is like a white supremacist dystopian novel, and sorry, the Serpent's Walk is a science fiction novel, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so he's just like in his. Evening times is like working in Tecumel, which is like this, you know, kind of India, kind of uh, maybe India in social structure, you know, reference, but then like aesthetically kind of Central American Mm -hmm. uh, kind of deal going on. And he's doing all of this kind of stuff. And then he's spending his days teaching classes and being a straight up white supremacist. Yeah. Uh, And we're not like trying to hold fine's feet to the fire because it doesn't seem like this was general knowledge so barker died however many years ago and there's like a tecumel society or foundation or something that uh sort of is is like the you know executor of his fantasy works uh Mm -hmm. because he wrote several novels also set in tecumel uh and it wasn't until march of this year of 2022 that they admitted that he had written uh whatever that uh uh neo-nazi uh sci-fi novel was plus uh sort of admitted that he was on the board of of the Holocaust denier uh journal um so i i it paints a lot of this chapter in a slightly different light when you notice this, right? Or like when you know this, it's like, oh, you're interested in India, huh? Like, okay, uh, you know, like the, the the swastika before it was appropriated by the Nazis has uh, its roots in in India, um, and then uh, there are these sort of like passing comments made about Tecumel as a setting and its uh, inefficient bureaucratic state that is there to like thwart and frustrate the players. All, all this stuff just kind of gets cast in a very different light. That is uh, not great. Yeah, well, you know, it is re- really interesting. I was like, two episodes ago, I was like, why don't people talk about Tecumel yeah. more than they do? And maybe I know now. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe it was maybe more general knowledge within these, you know, communities uh, that, that he was a white supremacist. Um, but, uh, yeah, I it, it does. It casts it in a totally different light. And, and in terms of, like, again, what who gets to be a part of these games, mm-hmm. right? Like, what what is the racial makeup of these things? And also to think about how much money TSR spent in promoting Tecumel. You know, I think mm-hmm. I said this in the Peterson episode that if you read those first 20, 30 issues of The Dragon, while, you know, as Tecumel, Empire of the Petal Throne, as that's like getting solidified as a game system and as a setting, they're just effusive about it, right? They're publishing new rules for it and things like that. And it's like, well, you know, I wonder if like, I don't know. 
it sucks yeah. <laughs> is what it does like it's just awful um and uh it's unfortunate that um you know that had such a big presence in the early 80s although i guess on the other end it it has faded into pure historical record, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we've probably spent more time talking about it here than basically any other human being who is not dedicated to it has. So, um, you know, maybe it's just gone. Yeah. Um, I do wonder because that the Tecumel Foundation, right, all that kind of stuff, that founded or that happened, I believe, because w when he died, they were able to get all of his papers mm -hmm. kind of in one, one big whack. And I wonder if part of that I wonder if they got a bunch of white supremacist shit too. Yeah. Curious about that. Um, and you know, if there are there notes that associate it with Chekamel of the setting, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm spiraling here thinking about just the absolute, absolute depravity of the human being. Right. But, um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, uh, it's an interesting chapter, <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's an interesting chapter in the sense of like, uh, he does a very good job of talking about, uh, Barker as a person who is so tightly controlling this kind of setting. Yeah. And then what happens when players come and interact with it? Um, you know, it's uh, if you're thinking about what does it mean for, you know, for example, in the current moment for players to interact with the officialness, quote unquote, of, say, the Forgotten Realms. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting historical comparison case. Um, you know, I think there's still use in thinking about what happened. But uh, I don't know if I'd be interested in enlivening the M.A.R. Barker uh, legacy. Yeah, there are like some of the interesting stuff that comes out of here, uh, out of this chapter. One is that like there are there are two groups that are talked about and they kind of have different orientations to the world. One is more of like a gaming group. They're like there to just, you know, go on the quests and get the treasure and accomplish goals. And the other one is more interested in the world and sort of learning about it and sort of uh, how this requires two different types of engagement from uh, Barker as the referee. Uh, there's this interesting uh, moment where uh, there, like some of the, uh, one of the groups like wants to know something like how how would someone in Tecumel say like oh nuts right just like a, an interjection or an expression of disappointment from like our world and they're just like what's what's the version of that in Tecumel and uh, Barker just has it right and it's uh yeah. unclear as fine points out like that these questions are being asked constantly right like how do you say this in Tecumel or like how would someone in Tecumel think about this. Um, and Barker is just like responding and it is never clear, Fine says, if Barker like has thought all this out, if he has it on lock, like if it's in a note somewhere um, or if he's just like making it up on the spot, like you can't tell, um, which I think is interesting. And then he says that uh, uh, at the end of this, uh, this is an important point. Culture is acquired, quote, acquired through social interaction. Um, and he says that this is what is happening when we're at the tabletop that like, you know, these questions like posed to the referee, uh, where you're trying to get clarification on the rules of a world, uh, is like bringing the, the culture of the fictional world into focus, but is also like focalizing the culture that you're building around the table, right? This is a world, or this is a culture in which like we can ask the DM these questions and the DM will have these answers. And he says that, uh, this can take on, and I quote, cult-like aspects if it's too all-encompassing or centralized uh but luckily apparently that's that's not the case with with barker and uh ept hmm. apparently uh next chapter is game structure uh it's pretty cool i yeah. like this chapter uh the uh, this chapter i think is is one of the ones it, it's kind of weird right because the Collective fantasy chapter and this chapter are pretty similar. Yeah. 
Um, in the, they cover similar grounds. Uh, you know, uh, this chapter is doing for like where the 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 other chapter, I guess, chapter three was about like what's it like to play the game. This is like what are the ways the game is played, mm-hmm. right? Like what are the ways that human beings actually like interact in this thing. And so it like demonstrates all these like um I don't know social leakages, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is the chapter that obliterates the magic circle. Mm-hmm. Um because it's like here's how all the stuff that is outside the game, right? Um uh you know, I mean this is where engrossment is helpful, I guess. Here's where all the stuff outside of the game uh it puts pressure on things that are inside of the game. Uh and so again it's a chapter that's full of like all kinds of amazing anecdotes the one that i really liked was uh, about uh, 14 year olds they're uh ch- younger players are did, does he call them low value players or something like that <laughs> I forget, low status players yeah. is what he calls them and he's like if you're a low status player you're just like you're on the receiving end of a bunch of shit mm-hmm. in these games like if you're 14 and the rest of the people you were with are 20 in your little gaming group you can't be the leader yeah like because of extra game, even if you were the the king, right, mm-hmm. or even if you're like you know the head of the fiefdom, because of the extra gamic kind of thing, you're just you're gonna be you know lower than them in mm-hmm. the game. And I was like, damn, he saw this happen. He saw a 14 year old get yelled over. Yeah. Well, there's this bizarre uh, thing at the beginning, and I, I'm using bizarre fairly loosely here, but I just can't imagine what this table would be like, where he says that, you know, sometimes you'll end up in a situation where uh, something happens in the game and everyone at the table rolls, but, like, only the players with, quote, the highest social standing, uh, only their roles count. Yeah. And so I just, I like, what is happening at a table where everyone is rolling, but, like, only the roles of certain people end up counting, Right. In, in like, oh, I oh, I can totally tell you how this happens. Yeah. Right? Uh, the way this happens is like, all right, everyone roll a perception check. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the the GC, I'm using D&D rules here, right? Yeah. The GC is whatever, 14. And uh, three people roll above a 14, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the highest status player, right? It's like, all right, uh, you know, Jonesy the Gremlin, you hear... Blah, 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 blah. Jonesy the Gremlin, you feel blah, 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 blah. You know that's like blah, 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 blah. All right. And Tony the Elf and Gigi the other goblin, you also hear that too, right? Like that. that's how that happens, right? It only it only matters or counts or or has any kind of thing. Now, I do get the sense as you're talking about that maybe it's like combat and like in this historical example, the the other ones just truly don't count. Yeah. It's like they didn't happen, right? But I do see how this system, you know, gets enlivened still today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in like DM attention, right, 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 right. Yeah, no, I was imagining uh, like combat where everyone's rolling, and it's just like, I'm sorry, you're not popular enough to have like made that hit. So, I mean, basically, yeah. and and like I can definitely imagine a world in which like, uh, especially where like individual kills, you know, I think we're much better now in tabletop games. In the sense of, like, if you're accruing experience through kills or whatever thing like that, there's, like, group XP. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this time, it's all individualized, right? Or right. At least that's the way most of these games are run. And so it's like, yeah, if two people are attacking the same hobgoblin, uh, the person that I decide kills it, you know, as a GM or as a referee, that person's going to get more experience. That's some, like, real direct favoritism. Yeah. And in in the end result, only one of those counted. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the this discussion I think you have it on on page one fifty eight 
about how people are excluded from play mm-hmm. through the the full game yeah. example is is truly amazing. I don't know. Do you, do you want me to talk through that? Do you want to talk through that? I think I, I you should how. talk through a little bit about how the social is predicated on its exclusions. So we're all hanging out, Michael, uh-huh. at the at the local police station getting ready to play <laughs> yeah. D&D. It's 1979. We're all getting ready to play Traveler. Yeah. <laughs> and and our uh, frenemy, Hateful Thomas, uh-huh. <laughs> comes in, right? And Hateful Thomas, he's hateful. Mm-hmm. He's rude. He's crude. And he's got a bad attitude. And me and you are sitting at our table. And we're getting ready to play. And and hateful Thomas come walks through the door. There's not very many people here yet. You know, it's like whatever seven p.m. People start rolling in at eight. And hateful Thomas comes over and says, "Hey, can I play with you guys tonight?" And me and you, Michael, we say, "Nope, our game's full for the night. We're just waiting for the rest of the players to get here. Mm-hmm. We already agreed that they were going to do it." Mm-hmm. And then, so hateful Thomas goes on his way. Mm-hmm. He goes and tries to find another game, and he goes to every table, and every game is full. Mm-hmm. And so hateful Thomas eventually finds someone who maybe is not as enfranchised, doesn't show up every week like we do, and that person lets them play. Um, and then, uh, Goody Two Shoes Alice comes in, <laughs> and Goody Two Shoes is a great player. Mm-hmm. And we say, hey, guess what, Goody Two Shoes Alice, we got a spot at our table. You want to play with us tonight? We bring her, bring her in. And then evil Bob comes in <laughs> and we say, sorry, game's full up. And this repeats, right? Mm-hmm. To where as people we like come in and who are quote unquote good players, right? Which is uh, all this internal system that we've talked about a little bit. We recruit them, but for everyone else, the game is full. And to be fair, hateful Thomas sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he he overrides other people. He will join games in progress and begin like railroading other people into his actions. You know, he'll take over. He'll shout people down. He'll join games and people will suicide all of their characters <laughs> in the game rather than continue playing with him. Mm-hmm. Like that level of I don't want to play with you. Yeah. And, you know, this is a phenomenon that's well talked about. And this is something that uh, Michael Hansen and I have talked about quite a bit, um, you know, about how it, it is a um, it's a tabletop role players. I don't know, desire to solve extra game problems within the game. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you have a player you don't like, so let's make the game hard for them yes. so that they'll leave as opposed to just having a conversation saying, Hey, you're making this game bad. I, I would prefer if you, we stopped playing or if you changed your behavior here, or what can I do to maybe align us together here? Um, you know, they, I, I, I think that's a critical and important thing to do, but it does seem like back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that you just use good old fashioned weird social exclusion mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Of n- non indirect forms of social exclusion um, in order to resolve your issues. Mm-hmm. And then Hateful Tony went on his way eventually. Yeah. It eventually stops coming. I mean, that's what we learned about a couple of these people, right? Yeah. It's like they just quit showing up because it's clear that they're being excluded. Yeah. No. And like, yeah, to, in all fairness, like one of these guys does seem to be real. Like one of them's a kid and he's just like annoying to play with. Right. Like that's one of them uh, because he, <laughs> he's a kid who is annoying to play with and who is then like, I know how to play this game better than anyone else here. Yeah. And the designers of the game. Yes. Right. <laughs> like he is incredibly <laughs> overconfident and like he, it, he's 14. Yeah. He's specifically 14. So just imagine, and like the most you know overconfident rude ass 14 year old he's awesome there should be a whole movie about yeah. this kid um but the other guy who, whose name i don't remember like he is like 
uh physically touching people right like he like he, a, a, another yes. kid like pisses him he's also like in his 20s or something and like a kid pisses him off and he like picks the kid up yeah he picks up a child yeah <laughs> and it's really fine i mean it's like the sociologist eye here but it's really funny that we're fine is like and i don't i can't even imagine what a what a what a teenager might think having a grown man pick him up yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> like it's said in this very indirect way but it's like holy shit yeah. what is going on here uh-huh. uh but yeah, he seems deeply unpleasant. Yeah, and so like uh, these people become like oh, his name is Mark. Mark. Yeah. Uh, but and the reason I know that is because uh, for two reasons. One, people start saying that uh, unpleasant things are Mark. Yes. So like it's like that orc is a real Mark, mm-hmm. and it's like ooh shit. Oh, that's exactly what I was going to point out is that these people become uh, examples that you use to like socially entrain other people who are joining the group. Right? Don't be a Mark becomes a thing that has meaning because it's like you know you Mark comes into the to the um police station hall or whatever and you point at him to the, your new friend and you're like this is mark he sucks don't do what mark does and they do a similar thing with the like the 14 year old know-it-all uh whose name i think is leonard um and oh i think we have these flipped i think oh. mark is the 14 okay so, sorry i'm looking anyway. at the book right now Oh, so, so but, uh, but this is true. Both both things are still true, right? Uh, and his thing is that when he runs games, he's like he's so overconfident in his ability to run the games that his uh, sessions are extremely difficult, uh, and he gets a reputation as being a sadistic DM. And so he becomes an example of like here is when you when your time comes and you run a game, here's how you don't run it. Um. So I think that is really interesting. There's also the bit here where uh, this this gaming group starts out, and it seems like mostly it's older people at the beginning, right? People who are coming out coming out of like the old war gaming scene or whatever. And then as uh, I get the sense that uh, Fine is going here, maybe over the course of a year or two, uh, you yeah, I think he goes every Friday night for a year. Yeah, uh, he says that I think in the methods. Okay, thing. yeah. So uh, as he's doing this. Uh, D&D is like slowly getting more popular or like tabletop gaming is getting more popular in general. And so more and more young people are starting to come in and the older people who were there at the start get tired of dealing with the young people and therefore start leaving uh, because it turns like they, one of the things that they keep saying is uh, we're not a babysitting service. And they have this sense that like people are just like sending their kids off to do this on the Friday night and then they have to like handle all of these new kids who've never played before and teach them how to play. And this is getting in the way of them actually playing the game or whatever. Uh, And then uh, one of the ways that they deal with this is that they start like uh, enforcing a curfew that I think is like on the books for Minneapolis um, where I, I, this is, this is like, for instance, this is true in like the small town where, where I am from, where you would think that it would have absolutely no reason. Uh, But there's like a whistle that goes off, at nine o'clock every night, that means that if you're under the age of 18, you're not supposed to be on the streets outside your house. Um, what? Yeah. Yeah. Like, here's the thing, though. No one. Do you live in 1850? I mean, in, in some ways, yes. Uh, and I'm, this is not like where I live right now. Right, this is where I'm from in Indiana, right? This is rural Indiana. Um, uh, uh, the old Boston whistle. Yeah, no, no, no. This is rural. The, the, it's, it's actually it's our um, tornado siren whistle. Um, right, of course. And this is oh, by the way, the uh, the 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 person no one liked was named Leo. Oh, okay, Leo. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, this is in in my small hometown in Indiana. 
this is true, right? We have like ostensibly like legally there is a curfew in the municipal law, but it's really not enforced. Uh, or rather, it is selectively enforced, and I'll let your imagination work on that. Um, but mm-hmm. here what happens uh, is that, uh, like, there's a, a apparently some sort of similar law in Minneapolis or in this region of Minneapolis where they're playing. And the way that they combat this influx of new kids is that they start enforcing the curfew, which means that all of the kids have to go home early. And then after they've kind of turned away the tide of kids, then they start, like, inviting back the kids who weren't as bad and they're like we're just yeah Mm -hmm. it's fine like you you can come back come out here past curfew like we'll vouch for you um so that's really interesting uh like one of the one of the kind of repeated things throughout this book that i really like is that fine is always saying things like and i'm just quoting from page 177 here fantasy is constrained by social structure and this works in both ways it means things like uh, what you were just talking about, you know, the the 12-year-old or whatever, or the 14-year-old cannot really be the leader of a party of 20-year-olds because there's this extra gamic stuff that uh, works its way into the game itself. And this also, uh, he, this is the section where he talks about things like how uh, out-of-game rivalries between people become in-game rivalries between their characters. Or even sometimes vice versa, right? Like, I think my this other person's character got special treatment, and so now I like them less outside of the game. Uh, but then we also have uh, just, like, the content of the fantasy where there are, like, two brothers who fairly frequently seem to, like, they, they make their characters brothers, even though there's no reason for that to be the case. Uh, or the other example is, like, one time this guy's girlfriend, like, played with them, and she... Uh, like like her character was in a like a romantic relationship with his character right these kind of Mm -hmm. things from outside the game persist in the game and and what have you Mm -hmm. yeah and and you know it's really funny reading this chapter that um so what oh sorry so one other thing about the fantasies constrained by social structure is that what's so partially what's so fascinating to me about why they don't like the kids being there and some of these kids are really young i mean some of these kids were like 10 11 12 um you know, and I, I can't imagine showing up to like play my tabletop game as, you know, like at my age. And there are people who are like in their 30s and 40s, it seems like mm-hmm. playing these games and then like having an 11 year old walk up and like having to play the game with them. Yeah, which is fine. I think an 11 year old can play this game. But like the way you want to play those games, especially given the content that we know shows up uh-huh. in these games, uh, the way you want to play is going to be quite different. But um, but what's interesting to me is one of the reasons that they're so unhappy is that the the kids don't know how to comport themselves in the genre. Mm-hmm. So, like, they don't know... They haven't read Tolkien. Right. So they don't know how to act in a Tolkien fantasy world, right? Right. Uh, they, they haven't read, uh, you know... Uh, they haven't read the... the uh, high literary tastes mm-hmm. of Larry Niven. And so they don't know how to, like, play Traveler correctly. Because th- I mean, that's <laughs> something he points out somewhere, right? That... <laughs> Uh, fine is like, yeah, I thought before I started going here that I read science fiction fantasy. You know, I read Ursula Le Guin and Samuel Delaney, and then I got there. Then everyone only reads Asimov, Heinlein, and Larry Niven. Yeah, no, this is this is me the first and only time I tried to run a game of Call of Cthulhu, and everyone in my game just like immediately got themselves killed. (laughs) (laughs) But 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 there's something really interesting here, right? And I know in every episode here, I've I've pulled this out, but it's just because it's the thing that I think about a lot, right? That 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 genre is determining shape just as much as anything else here, mm-hmm. and it's determining the social structure, which is which is pretty fascinating. But, um, uh, but uh, sorry, but the thing I was going to say is that I've actually been a part of two of the things that happened in this chapter. 
mm-hmm. uh, but you know, 30 years later, which is fascinating. So one is that I used to go when I was in graduate school, I was playing Friday night magic pretty regularly, which is like on Friday nights, you go play a magic tournament. There's like prize support at a local game store. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, basically parents were using it as a daycare service. Yeah. So they were picking their kids up or having their kid or, you know, whatever they were getting their kids to, especially during the summer to the game store in the summer at like 1 PM. Uh, and then, uh, at, uh, during the school year, like as soon as school was out or whatever, they were taking their, their kids there and then just dropping them off children. And I don't mean like 11, 12 year olds. I mean like eight, nine, 10. Oh my God. Like kids, little kids occasionally. And bringing them there and being like, it's Friday Night Magic, have fun. And then they'd come back at 7 30, 8, 9 o'clock. And sometimes Friday Night Magic goes to like 11. Uh-huh. You know, it depends. And the store initially, you know, created this system of like, we have younger Friday Night Magic and like adult Friday Night Magic. And younger Friday Night Magic is over by like 5 p.m. And so come get your kids. And then. Older Friday Night Magic is is for later, and uh, but what ended up happening is the parents just paid for both entry fees essentially, and their kids just stuck around the whole time and they played in the adult quote unquote tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so it see I wasn't there when it happened, uh, but it became a kind of pressure when it was like oh two thirds of my games are against like nine year olds, mm-hmm. and this is not fun. And, like, it's actively distracting. A, a listener to the show and someone who's in the Discord who I will not uh, I will not name, um, but, uh, you know, a, a good, good friend of mine uh, once played a game against, like, a 9 or a 10-year-old who was spinning around in their chair the whole time. <laughs> like, playing a competitive game of Magic, just spinning 360 in their chair for 95% of the match. Um, and, like, forgetting what they were doing and wandering away. So, like, it ended up being pretty bad. And my, I'm given to understand that what happened is that several players got together who were like, you know, the enfranchised high profile, high prestige players, whatever it is, high status players. They got together and they were like, we won't, we won't come anymore mm-hmm. if you don't stop this. And so then there was like a hard limit. Like kids had to be out by a certain time. And then the kids who they liked got to be invited back. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the 12 year old, 13 year olds who were like good players and, and, cared about the game seriously so this is like a thing that just keeps happening right there's something about the structure of the gaming store as a mechanism and also like the absolute nightmare of american child services in any kind of way right Mm -hmm. um uh, support for parents in any kind of way that this just becomes like an outlet um and and allows to happen so pretty fascinating thing i thought um uh to be reading this and be like oh my god i've lived it (laughs) jeez Everything about this hobby is cyclical, not just certain things. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, I thought this chapter was really cool. Um, and uh, I, I, I thought that, um, you know, laying out what are the ways that extra gaming systems put pressure on gaming systems, I thought was really important, really useful, really able to go back to this chapter, I think, in the current time period and, and uh, reference these arguments without really any kind of adaptation. Mm-hmm. These things just keep happening. Yeah. Uh, well, then the next chapter is called Frames and Games, if you're ready to move on. I am. I'm happy to move on. So this is, uh, uh, as Cameron alluded to earlier, uh, this is the chapter where Fine brings in the uh, sort of methodological apparatus of Irving Goffman, particularly his frame analysis, uh, to show how, uh, more or less, like people move between different uh, levels of meaning. And this is actually 
critical because this is Fine's kind of addition to Goffman's analysis. So Goffman, in like the most basic sense, uh, just says, you know, like when you uh, uh, think of think of all social interaction as like a stage play, right, as kind of drama with a kind of implied script to it. And you walk into a room, into a building, into a situation, uh, and it's, you know, nothing weird. Like, just, you're walking into, I don't know, the mechanic's office in order to ask your car to be looked at or what have you. Um, There's, like, a set of social expectations for how you're going to do that, how the other person is going to respond, and you all kind of play your parts and then you're done. Um... Uh, you know, other things might happen during the time, but, you know, things might go off script in certain ways, but that's kind of how, like, the social works for, for Goffman's frame, right? The 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 uh, frame there is, like, the business transaction in kind of, like, the public space. Uh, and what Fine does is he takes this and he says what, what Goffman does not really get to that I think is important is that uh, there are frames within frames, that uh, in, in in a situation like a tabletop game, like that is one sort of like big frame uh, where, you know, there, there are certain things that you're doing or certain social expectations. Um, but then within that frame, there are these like variable or flexible or more particular frames about like, how do you tend to approach the rules? How do other people around the table approach the rules? And how does this kind of result in, in a little culture of like, here's how people at this table think about these rules. And then even further beyond that, there is again kind of the the fictional content of the fantasy scenario of uh, like a different persona. Like, how does my character think about this versus how do I, the rule knower, think about this versus how do I, the person who is embodied sitting here in this room, uh, you know, think about it? Mm-hmm. And you got to kind of got to oscillate between all those things. Right. And they're constantly like you're constantly uh, moving up and down. The word that uh, Fine uses is keying, right? You key up or you key down uh, into kind of these like different embedded frames. Yeah, I, I thought that this was a uh, an interesting chapter. I, I it didn't really add much to like what I know about Irving Goffman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I I've got, you know, my good old fashioned basic understanding of what's going on here and and it uh you know was um added to or this specific use case was in it but i didn't you know i wasn't like oh my god now i finally get it mm-hmm. um i uh i did think so i wrote down what i think is like kind of the thesis of the chapter and then also maybe the thesis of the book uh-huh. just to be honest with you so this is on 195 i'm just going to read the paragraph Every social world has its own structure of meaning. It is my contention that although the scientific structure of fantasy role-playing gaming is unique, the processes being examined here characterize other social worlds as well. Consider spying. Mm -hmm. Here we find espionage agents acting undercover, portraying the roles of other real or fictitious, fictitious individuals. At least two levels of awareness operate here. The spy in his real identity and the spy in his assumed identity. The spy knows only those details about his assumed self that he is told and cannot recall other biographical facts. Thus, the spy is like the player portraying a fantasy character. Likewise, the assumed identity cannot know those things that the spy would know, as the medieval character cannot know about modern technology. The spy in disguise can be uncovered if he knows things that the person he is portraying couldn't know, as well, of course, as not knowing things he surely would have known. Right. And that's so that's like the the thing. And I think actually that's just like that. That's this book, mm-hmm. which is like, how do you account for uh, a system or like a, a game that requires you to do that? This kind of separate identity thing going on. But then within that separate identity, create culture. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, so meaning like I'm pretending to be a little fantasy elf and I go and exist in a little fantasy world and then collaboratively with a referee or other players, I create in-game, I create Faerun Ball or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that in it of itself is the thing that I think draws fine to tabletop gaming is, is that you create this kind of second self and then that second self has to go on and live a life and like create a little world for itself. And I, and I kind of mean like capital W world in the sense of like what phenomenology would, would, you know, would think through what world is meaning like the self-consistent reality effect that has particular kind of forms and functions and affects in it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, he, he does this like massive analysis here of like Goff, Goffman's levels of awareness. So it's like, do I know who I am or do I know who you are? And do we recognize each other mm-hmm. in our like given frame? Right. Um, when you go to the mechanic, does the mechanic recognize you as like someone who knows cars or someone who can be tricked? Right. Right. Um, that kind of, kind of mechanic or uh, kind of situation. Right. But the difference between the situation with the mechanic or even what he says in the uh, methodological appendix, the difference between tabletop role playing and the little league stuff that he did is that the little league players don't make culture. Mm-hmm. Like they don't invent their own right. cultures. They're either reenacting some sort of culture from, uh, 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 from baseball or they are kind of doing general competitiveness culture and the things that they care about or are concerned about or focus on are things that are ultimately outside the game. Um, you know, things about their family life, whatever within the, the tabletop games, that's not the case. They're inventing these like concerns and moments of concern. And so there's this kind of depth to learning about self-creation, self-presentation in tabletop role-playing games. That's not really there in some of the other examples. Mm Mm-hmm. So it kind of becomes like a little lab or a little experiment space, right? Of like what happens, you know, when you create a Petri dish and let culture grow. Um, And uh, that's, I think that's why he's so fascinated in it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I thought this was like a perfectly fine chapter. Yeah. And I think it like what you just said sort of relates to what the next chapter is, which is uh, role playing and person playing. And this is where fine digs down into a kind of recurring opposition or I guess maybe distinction that's shown up in Peterson, uh, particularly as Peterson was most interested in like the origins of role playing, uh, which is like the the different uh, orientations of players. Uh, one who plays as a gamer, uh, and this is just from page two hundred seven. Quote: The gamer plays the game as himself, while the player who wishes to lose himself to the fantasy is the true role player. He plays the character. Now, I don't get the sense that uh, Fine thinks like one of these is a better form of play than the other. I think uh, really what it is is that he is more interested in role playing uh, and what that does and what it entails for all the reasons that you just said. Uh, Because the gamer doesn't have to think as uh, closely or as sustainedly about like the phenomenology of the character's world. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, and Fine is very interested in this thing that's happening with, like, the multiplication of personae at different levels or at different frames, right? That's the thing that he is interested in, and so the the, the orientation toward play that doesn't really intensify that is not as interesting to him, though he does point out uh, what he thinks is interesting, that uh, the, like, a, a gamer, quote-unquote, um, is not going to be as responsive when, like, an NPC insults them. Right. They're just like, oh, the NPC insulted me, whatever. Like, I'm continuing on my way. I'm going to go find a merchant, whatever. Uh, But the role player, he says, is going to be much more adept at having characters do things that 
the player doesn't think are good or doesn't agree with, right? Like role players are are going to be more likely to uh like compromise their own values for like the story of the character. And I think that uh like I'm sure, right? I I guess um I would like to know a little bit more about how this squares with like the stories of violence and everything that are on, uh, always coming up, right? Like I I think that there's something here uh, where Fine recognizes all of the the quote unquote locker room talk and all of that stuff as almost like just like baseline, like almost literally like boys will be boys, and then finds these other distinctions in play, kind of um, on top of that. Uh, but I I just think it's interesting that this claim gets made, but then we don't sort of work back around and think like, well. Like, is it gamers or role players who are more likely to uh, do all of this, like, fantasy sexual assault, right? Like, mm-hmm. or, or, like, not that that isn't even necessarily a thing that uh, Fine could answer, but, like, that is that is a question that is prompted for me based on the materials that are already here in this book. Yeah. Like, where where does it emanate from, or what? where is the uh, location of desire? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, then the next chapter, unless you have something else to say. I, uh, the, uh, the one thing that really stuck out to me here, uh, because again, I think, I think you're, I think you're right. Like this chapter feels a lot like chapter three in that, like, if you've played a tabletop game, I don't think there's a lot of like shock here, mm-hmm. uh, as far as like how people think about their characters, uh, weirdly enough that it seems uninterrupted basically from the, the origins of the time until now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at least in the way that, that fine talks about it as a kind of like, um, presentational phenomenon, but uh, but something I do think is really interesting here is that the the drive to connect with a character can, it was so strong that resurrection as a mechanic in like Dungeons and Dragons specifically or in the Blackmore campaign, I guess, was invented to keep people from like freaking out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Dave Arneson is like, yeah, uh, do you know the the anecdote that I'm talking about where. So uh, it's a bunch of uh, players, mm-hmm. and there's one longtime player there, and he misses a oh, session. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is so. And weird. So like some, o- <laughs> yeah, some other person plays his character for the session, and he dies. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back the next week, and he's like, "So I I died while I wasn't here." And there, and Arneson had to be like, "Yeah, it's uh, sorry." You know, and he actually says in the you know in the interview, he's like, "I wouldn't do that today. I would not. I would have pulled my punches a little bit more here. I wouldn't have allowed this to happen to begin with." Mm-hmm. Um, which which says something interesting about Arneson. But then he's like, "Well, I guess you could bring him back to life if you like resurrect him, and we can do a little quest." And everyone was like, "Let's do it. Let's bring him back to life. <laughs> yeah, it's better to have him continue playing this character." So I, I thought that was interesting. That like something we take to be uh, part of the bones of the game, right? In the same way that magic and fireballs came out of a star trek goof essentially right mm-hmm. um that resurrection comes out of a kind of extra gamic thing right you know that this this player desire more than like you know the heart of the cards or whatever right that that i think a lot of people treat these games as is like you know uh intent seriousness whatever it's like no people wanted to be able to keep playing their game their character that died so we did that because that's fun to do yeah that origin um, was so weird because I mean, one, like, you know, they, they let another person, like, play his character while he wasn't there, which I know is a thing that can happen. But then the fact that they have to, it's like, well, we need to just, like, work in a quest 
to to like resurrect this character. We can't just be like, well, the other guy was playing it and you died. So we're just going to ignore that. Right. They couldn't retcon it out. They had to like maintain the continuity of the campaign uh, to the extent that, as you say, like they fundamentally end up, I think, changing the mechanics of how this game works. Right. Yeah, you got you got to mechanize. It. Right. Uh, last chapter yeah yeah final chapter the the reality of fantasy uh it turns out that even when you're imagining stuff that isn't real you're doing things that are real wow uh, damn they got you yeah i mean got them yeah. it sounds like we're trying to sell this short but actually no i think that's yeah that's that's absolutely true like i agree with that <laughs> uh yeah I, I i it's interesting like a uh, final chapter um it, it it is truly like a summative chapter. I think a lot of the things that are stated here, are things that we've just said over the course of the thing, and um, I think there uh, most of the things that are said here are things that um, Fine says over the course of it. It is fascinating to me that the comparable subculture, because he says uh-huh. like, "Hey, tabletop role players are a subculture, and they have particular values, and they pursue them in certain ways, like all subcultures do." Another subculture that is comparable is the feminist subculture. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought of all the subcultures to pick, right? And and he means subculture in the sense of like, you know, um, uh, politically identified feminists. I think there's also the assumptions, last assertion that like, this is the group of people who are involved in like political lesbianism and things like that, mm-hmm. right? So like uh, po- uh, politically militant feminists in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, I don't know why they're the comparison. I don't know either. I thought it was a strange comparison as well. Uh, yeah. We both noted it in our in our notes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it sticks out. Yeah. He spends like a full page on it, and it's like I don't. know. Okay, fine. Yeah, whatever. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think I I agree. I think the games we play say something about us as a culture, like broadly. And what I think what's good about this book in a general sense is it's not like a light media effects book in the sense of like he he does not say hey all this violence in these games and all of these assertions and assumptions about women as property, about sexual assault, all these things. It's not that these games make you do these things in the world, right? It's not the mortal combat. Yeah. Right. You know, like, but he says, look, Hey, games provide a mirror for the world, Mm -hmm. right? Like the things that we play in have something to do with the kind of macro culture that we're in. Uh, They are not cut off from the world whatsoever. They are kind of, emanations of it you know uh, weirdly enough the it, it's it's obliterating the magic circle argument but is kind of in conversation with the Huzinga style of you know the game is the social structure rewritten into other terms right mm-hmm. um but it, you know it's it goes much further beyond that right i mean uh, sociology basically didn't exist at the time that <laughs> Huzinga is writing um and you know it's into its own fully uh, by the time we get to the 80s but um, you know, that I, I think it's an uncontroversial claim. Maybe maybe it is. I don't know. But I think if you're listening to the show, it's probably an uncontroversial claim that like games are part of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that we play probably says something about the world in the same way, the way that we read or the way that we watch or the way that we talk about um, our political stances say something about the world um, and that you can index that back uh, into learning about, you know, what we think and how we ideologically engage with the world mm-hmm. and. I th- yeah, I think I think it makes a compelling case for that. Although the fact that there is a uh, avowed white supremacist in the middle of it does present some issues with how well the game actually does uh, allow you to think through the implications of the game design. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, another in, uh, like final note here that I think is really interesting. Uh, this is from page 237. Um, Fantasy gaming provides for a sense of community with other similar individuals in an urban environment, but simultaneously it permits and recognizes the existence of other social ties, other communities. Uh, in this, fantasy gaming is an example of the urban scenes described by Irwin, 1977, Areas of encounter that permit the development of partial communities, but which do not insist upon total commitment. Uh, this is a, a thing that actually comes up a couple times throughout this book, that uh, people who are playing these games are also always doing something else, right? They're always operating in the world in, in some capacity, uh, either their job, their school, whatever, that doesn't really have anything to do with kind of their tabletop gaming or who they are around the table or who they hang out with when they're, when they're doing this stuff. Um, and what was striking to me about this particular formulation here in 237 uh, is that I think that this has become extremely less true about not only tabletop gaming, but about basically all kind of like nerd subcultures uh, that uh, th there is like there's been a push, right, or sort of like a cultural drift toward like more centralizing of your identity around your like consumption habits in this way, um, and particularly with tabletop gaming. And I was thinking about that also because in an earlier chapter, I don't remember which one. Uh, but a thing that I thought was really interesting is that Fine talks about uh, the experience of joining a new group and sort of coming in for the first time and like playing with people and like talks to other people about having gone to, you know, a new group for the first time. And, and some of the observations that he makes are that uh, they are often very uh, almost like pseudo anonymous, meaning that like he says quite explicitly, you show up and you play and you don't talk about really anything that you do other than like the game in front of you or maybe other games that you have played. But he says, you know, like I, I, I played multiple games with people who I never even learned their last names, right? We just kind of had mm -hmm. like a first name. I never learned like what their job was, what they sort of did for fun. Like sort of like he says, you know, their political and kind of like ethnic background. Um, uh, so there is, uh, there does seem to be something here, uh, if it's not, you know, actually existing historically, then at least uh, uh, Fine seems to be maybe like recognizing it rhetorically, the sense that uh, these hobbies are or can be compartmentalized or siloed off from kind of like your day to day uh, actions or like your day to day maybe mm -hmm. identity. Um, is that is that the Midwest, though? Uh, what do you mean? Well, I mean, it, the I I didn't get that impression that that's what's going on on the West Coast, mm -hmm. right? Like the the L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, like different groups, right? Because the, there's even a quotation in this book from Alarms and Excursions uh, from Lee Gold, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the same, I I felt like from the uh, John Peterson that there was a maybe less. Um, not explicitly political, but certainly an ideological um, framework that the MIT group uh -huh. were involved in, right? Of like the clockwork dungeon, mm -hmm. right? That, that they kind of moved away from, but like, and that the rules are kind of this like iron cage of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, you can't, there's no, not a lot of flexibility in them. Like is showing up to game night. And I'm asking this seriously yeah. as someone who did not grow up in the Midwest. Right. But is, is showing up to game night as a kind of like genteel, non-political figure who is unwilling to talk about like religion, politics, or money, <laughs> right? Is, is that is that the Midwest, right? Or, or is that uh, a universal phenomenon uh, in, in the gaming space? And I it, like, it, because when you describe this, right, you could be talking about anything if it happened in the Midwest, and that would kind of be what I would assume, right? 
that like you show up for the event and everything else is kind of left at the door because that's my kind of like perspective on that culture. Um, whereas I don't associate that with the coasts. I mean, I do kind of associate it with the South too. I mean, that, that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess that's a true and actual question, right? Is this tabletop gamers or is this the place where he spent a year? And I know he went to a national and a regional event, mm-hmm. right? But also still the activity was concentrated into a fairly small number of people at that time. And physically, um, you know, there, a lot of them are in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is is there a, a way that what he's taking for uh, as an artifact of tabletopness is actually an artifact of region? Mm-hmm. Um, I and, and I truly don't know. And I don't know if you have an opinion on it. I mean, I would say, sure, maybe, right? Like, uh, I learned to play tabletop games in the Midwest, uh, so maybe I'm in some way damaged goods. Uh, I don't think, I mean, also, like, the 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 demographics of the people that I was playing with, like we were all basically like high school and college students. And I feel like that is very different. Like we did talk more about ourselves and kind of like classes we were in or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. It didn't feel quite as, uh, you know, pseudo anonymous uh, as, as fine kind of suggests. Um, and but in, in, in a broader sense, like that's also like the mid 2000s, right? It's not the late 70s, early 80s. And uh the the like number of say like war gamers who were uh in my kind of orbit um during uh this time period sort of like you know the the grognards as as we say uh there weren't as many of those it, like we were all kind of like kids who were playing D mm-hmm. so i i just uh you know thought it was interesting that this was fine's impression definitely of like what where the culture was at and how i think today uh you know the the closest maybe we get to the pseudo anonymous kind of thing is being able to kind of like uh, have a pen name or like a, a sort of like persona that you use for like Twitter. And when you're doing like your, your, um, you know, online role playing games and things like that, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I don't know, something something that I wanted to, to talk about because I thought it was interesting. Uh, and then after this, just to finish out the book, then then we have the whole section on method that we've already talked about. One thing that I wanted to mention from this that we haven't mentioned yet related to the earlier thing about like dropping your kids off at the game store for daycare uh, was Fine's own kind of narrative of as the older players kind of started dropping out, but he still kept showing up. It was him like he became the uh, knowledgeable player who had to like guide people around and teach them how to play and take care of all these kids and how it begot or how, how that got, uh, you know, progressively less fun. <laughs> right. Because it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was good. I thought his like own reflections on his own experience were some of the more interesting parts of the book. Yeah, um, I think this book is really interesting, uh, really good. I think as a historical document, uh, uh, good to think about and think with, uh, as we've said a multiple times throughout the show, right? To kind of like get a sense of where things might have been uh, in the early '80s, uh, and then reflect on how has that changed, how has that not changed, and in particular. Uh, what are the things that haven't changed and why are those things not changing? Right. Um, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. I enjoyed I enjoyed reading the book. Uh, I did not enjoy finding out about M.A.R. Barker. Yeah, that was extremely depressing. Um, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. Summer of Classics, uh, this is the first episode in it and it's going to continue. Next month is going to be 
Stuart Hall's book, Cultural Studies, 1983. I believe it is a, uh, if I've got my memory correct, Cultural Studies, 1983 is a book uh, that is the the seminar that he gave in 1983 about what is cultural studies, I think, at Birmingham. Mm-hmm. So, so it's written in a very, I think, familiar and friendly way in, in terms of like, it's just a series of lectures that were given uh, as part of a seminar. It's going to set up some terms of cultural studies. Um, you know, we often talk in the show about like, where's cultural studies in XYZ book? And if you're being curious about what that means, hey, guess what? You're going to have that here. Uh, so you can learn more about it. Um, it is notably a classic, like in the world, but perhaps not a game studies classic, and maybe it could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to be for July. In August, we're going to be reading uh, and Kennedy's Game Cultures book, which is like a hugely influential book for maybe half the field, and the other half of the field has never heard of it before. So <laughs> we're going to uh, maybe try to unite some of those uh, threads and talk across it. It's a really interesting book. It's just about like what what are games? It's kind of a definitional book, uh, big capital T theory book, and I think it's going to be really helpful. And then in September, we're going to be reading Bernard Suits's The Grasshopper, which is a kind of big philosophy book, capital P philosophy, um, and uh, which is also really really influential. I have a little bit of a uh, up and down relationship with it. I think I'm I'm not as enthused about it as maybe other people are, but I'm eager to dig into it. And of course, uh, these uh, just a thing that's worth noting. Cultural Studies 1983, I think there's only one version of that book, so you can check that out easily. Game Cultures as well, if you want to check those out in front of us. Uh, The Suits book has multiple different editions. We are going to be reading the most recent edition, which is the third edition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it just means some front matter and back matter has changed out. I don't think the text is different, but just FYI, in case you have the older version, uh, we might be dealing uh, with a little bit of a different one. I think the the third edition came out fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got that. Also, just a thing to say here at the end of the episode is we are now affiliates with bookshop.org. Oh, yeah. Which is which is cool. Um, and so if you want to buy any of the books that are uh, a part of Game Studies Study Buddies that we talk about here, if you want to buy any of these books that we have announced going forward, you can just go to that link. It's in the description down below. It's also going to be on the main page of rangetouch.com. So you can just go to rangetouch.com, scroll down a little bit, and then click on the bookshop.org link that's going to be there on that main page. Um, it just means that we get a little bit of kickback money for it, um, for directing you there, and that you you are purchasing from bookshop.org, which buys from independent booksellers rather than Amazon. So uh, it's a cool thing to do if you're going to buy these books and you want them and you're going to engage with it. Bookshop is a pretty cool idea and concept, and we are happy to be affiliates with them. Um, and, uh, also if you want to support the show by buying books, that that's a way of doing it, um, alongside things like patreon.com slash range touch. So that's just a little uh, spiel and preview of what's coming up soon on the show. And we're really excited, uh, cause it, you haven't read any of these three books, right, Michael? Uh, no, I haven't. Right. I, I, I think you, you've read much like I have, you've read a bunch of Stuart Hall yeah, probably, yeah, but, but never this I specific also, book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've never sat down to sit and read through cultural studies, 1983, all in one whack. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, and, uh, so I think it's going to be good for, for all of us. And, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be the episode. We will be back in one month with Stuart Hall's cultural studies in 1983. Michael, take us out. The social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>